Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is a husband, father, former Marine officer, and the co-founder and CEO of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, Jeremy Stallnecker. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. I've never served in the military or as a first responder, but I have many friends in both categories, and they report something that, at first, I found a bit surprising. That despite the deep physical, emotional, and even spiritual hardships they've faced on the fire line or at the fire station, once their term is over, they sometimes kind of miss it. How can anyone miss it, you might ask? Bullets flying, bombs exploding, guns drawn, running into a towering inferno. And yet safe in their homes and with their families, they miss standing nose to nose with death and sometimes closer? It doesn't make much sense until you understand men and our modern world. There's a thrill of adrenaline, yes. That feeling of your consciousness being narrowed down to a single task to the exclusion of all others. That I have experienced. The relief of certainty that all my attention, focus, and effort is required for this job right now and nothing else matters. I've felt that. I think every man has. It's where our single focus-driven minds find the peak of their expression. But you can get that on the ball field, kinda. Or playing music, too. It's not the same as a bullet or a blaze, but focus has its own unique value. When you talk to veterans and first responders, however, they talk about missing something else, much more powerfully. The feeling of camaraderie and brotherhood. That feeling of being in the Humvee, ambulance, or helicopter on the way to do a job with your brothers beside you. That when getting it done, a man's got your back and you've got his. That together you and your squad are a well-oiled unit, imperfect but you work it out, and the stakes are high, much higher than the ball field. Jack Donovan's classic book, The Way of Men, says that the way of men that stood for thousands of years was the way of the gang. It was life, and now it is not. Not for most men on the right side of the law, anyway. Unless you're a veteran or first responder. Those men, they have a gang. In fact, I'd even venture a guess that they are their gang, and that the gang is them. Most men like me have never known that feeling. Not to that extent, anyway. It's part of me, and I know it. I've gotten flashes of it on the side of a mountain in the Himalayas, for example. But the mountain doesn't shoot back. So I, like many men, live with this vague, unfulfilled longing, and sometimes a good war movie does the trick. And the charge of the Rohirrim, too. But for men who've known it, who've had it, who've been more than themselves for a few brief minutes, no matter the mess they were in, I imagine that feels like losing a limb. Maybe worse. And now today they ask, what job am I doing? Paperwork? Where are my brothers? Gone? 
Who's got my back? No one. What are the stakes? Non-existent. Those words are about as close as I can get to understanding their predicament. And when you take into consideration that the life path of a man who goes towards the military or the fire service or law enforcement is a bit different than the one that takes a man to college like me, at some point in these men's lives, they're confronted with the reality of their suffering with no brothers around them to help and a culture that tells them to chew some concrete pills and harden up. Well, as I'm sure we all know, this is a losing strategy. Take a man forged in a team, remove him from that team, and subject him to the stresses of inner and outer life, and it shouldn't be a surprise that that man breaks. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Jeremy Stallnecker, and he's a former Marine infantry officer and an Iraq war veteran who earned a Navy Commendation Medal with V for Combat Valor. He's also a former pastor and the CEO and co-founder of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, a Christian organization supporting veterans and first responders, helping them adjust back to civilian life and deal with PTSD from a biblical perspective. Funny story, a good friend of mine, Ryan, had just come back from a week-long event for Mighty Oaks Warriors, shout out Ryan, and had shared what a meaningful and moving experience it was for him and the men who attended. I was so happy for him. I think he said to me, Will, you should get Chad Robichaud, the Mighty Oaks founder, or Jeremy Stalnecker, the CEO, on your podcast. No joke, about a week later, I got a cold email from Jeremy's representative reaching out to see if I might like to have him on the show. I probably had to delete a few exclamation marks in my reply before I sent it. Because I had just seen firsthand the results of something I already knew to be true. That when you get men together, away from their families and responsibilities, to tell their stories, something special happens. I know Jeremy knows all about it. How capital T trauma, of the sort even civilians can't imagine, doesn't need to define us as men. We can't let trauma limit what God wants to do in our lives. But to fix it doesn't require esoteric healing techniques from faraway lands. Or, contrary to what other podcasts have said, it doesn't take chemicals or, quote, medicines. It can be had with brotherhood, conversation, prayer, and ongoing support. I can't explain it except to say something that you may have heard me say before. The world says masculinity is toxic. Everything the world says is backwards. That means masculinity is medicine. That's true for women, children, society, and for other men. Especially for other men. Even more so for our veterans and first responders forged in teams and separated from them. And sometimes a little bit of masculinity, driven by raw and honest self-expression, is what's needed to bring it all back and help hurting men move forward. In our conversation, Jeremy and I discussed the scope and mission of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, trauma and its definitions and impact, the lack of healing in men's Christian groups, men's isolation and suicide, the power of God and forgiveness, the Mighty Oaks Women's Program and its challenges, Christ as the example of masculinity, and finally, Jeremy's own story of achievement on the battlefield then his homecoming, fall, and redemption. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. These past couple months have been epic for me, and it's been a real thrill to watch the podcast grow. This is a free podcast, so you can help that process along by leaving a five-star rating on Spotify and a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Last I checked, I've got close to 200 reviews on Spotify, which I'm thrilled about. Thank you all so much. But you Apple people, just 70 reviews? You've got to pump those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers. 
so please scroll down to the episode list and click that five-star rating. Also, this episode is available on YouTube, so don't miss it there. And in the coming weeks, I've got big news. Next week, just in time for your Thanksgiving travel, I'll be releasing my second interview with Alison Armstrong. And the week after that, Pastor Doug Wilson and Christiana Hale will be talking about C.S. Lewis' Space Trilogy. And in January, I'm excited to announce the return of Laser Hoddle with many more great guests lined up. So if you haven't already, please subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Finally, before we start the interview, at the beginning of this monologue, I said I'd never served in combat, and that's true, nor have I been a fireman or first responder. But this kind of work with men, this I have done. I know it's real, and I know it's powerful. In fact, I know it saves men's lives. A form of it even helped me save mine. So if you're listening to this, and you know a veteran or first responder fighting a battle alone, I strongly urge you to share this podcast with him or her, or someone close to them, and getting them on one of the Mighty Oaks programs. It's my hope that this conversation blesses you and your loved ones in that regard. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, the co-founder and CEO of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, Jeremy Stalnecker. Jeremy Stalnecker, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, man. Thank you. I'm uh, really looking forward to the conversation. You know, the timing of, uh, of when your organization reached out was really, um, was really, it was I mean, providential because sure. a friend of mine uh, had just gone through the program. I think he went through in, in Washington, maybe, or not too far. And uh, within a couple of weeks after he finished, I got an email from, from Gavin. <laughs> it was like, oh, that's, that per- that's perfect. Yeah, he, that's he, awesome. said he had amazing things to say. Very cool. No, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, I just got a, a Facebook message, messenger message from uh, someone I haven't talked to in probably 15 years the other day. And they said, hey, just, l- just to let you know, we had a friend go through the, one of the programs and they're doing really well. So yeah, it's awesome when those connections kind of kind of happen. Well, let's, let's, let's start out by talking about uh, Mighty Oaks and, uh, and, and who it serves and maybe sure. a bit about its founding and then we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, so the Mighty Oaks Foundation is um, a nonprofit um, in that we're a 501c3. We're a faith-based nonprofit, which means a lot of things to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But for us, what that means is we approach topics like trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, depression, those issues from a faith perspective. We believe that God is the creator, that as the creator is a plan for our lives. And that moving beyond so much of the trauma and the difficulty that we deal with, comes from a place of understanding who he is, what he has for us, and focusing on that instead of the trauma, instead of the past, instead of those trials. Uh, We serve primarily veterans, active duty service members, first responders, and spouses. And so we have a lot of folks come to us who have dealt with combat trauma, um, 20 years of war, a lot of combat veterans. Uh, A lot of those veterans who are dealing with combat trauma, once we kind of peel the onion back, so to speak, and we get underneath the surface, we realize that what they have been dealing with is childhood trauma, a lot of sexual trauma as children that they take into the military, then deal with the violence of combat and bring that into married life and family life and civilian life and don't do that well. We work with, um, as I mentioned, first responders who are working every day and dealing with traumatic experiences and then going back on shift tomorrow so they never experience the opportunity to deal with that. And so um, yeah, it's been incredible to to see how a confrontation with God <laughs> and an understanding mm-hmm. of who God is and what God has designed you to be as a man or as a woman, 
how that really allows us to break the chains of uh, of trauma. And uh, it's unbelievable. We've had about 4,500, 4,500 uh, individuals come through one of our week-long programs that happen across the country. And uh, about 70% of those um, make a profession of faith of some kind. Now, some accept Christ as mm-hmm. their Savior. Others, it would be um, you know, baptism, what we might call in some circles a rededication, something like that. But they come to an understanding over the course of that week that the path forward is in a relationship with God through Christ. And so uh, we've seen some incredible things happen. Beyond that, we talk about trauma. We go to conferences, active duty military conferences, uh, churches, other venues across the country. And in the last 10 years, we've spoken to about 2,500 folks uh, about you know many of the same topics we talk about in our programs and uh, produce resources. We write books and a lot of videos and testimonial resources that can be found on our website. So um, that's kind of the the, the high view of wow. all of that. But it started out of uh, Chad Robichaux, our founder, um, a combat veteran of Afghanistan, myself, a combat veteran, Marine, both Marines from Iraq, and uh, us working to help others find healing and hope um, in that relationship with Christ that we were able to find in our own lives. So. Um, yeah, it's very, very grassroots, very um, kind of man-to-man, face-to-face, us telling our story and talking about what God has done in our lives and, and sharing that with others and initially thought it would be you know, a relatively small thing. And uh, it's, it's, it's blown up. It's unbelievable what God has done. That's amazing. Thank you for that. Thank you for that really thorough overview because there's a lot of things in there after doing my research that even I didn't have a good sense of, what, especially the scale especially the yep. scale of everything, yep. of everything you're doing. It's, it's kind of hard to take it all in through the eyes, yes. but to hear it described in that way, it's a massive organization that's serving, it sounds like a massive need. Yeah, it's incredible. So um, just for, for context, when we started, um, so Chad and his family started the Mighty Oaks Foundation in 2012. I came along shortly thereafter, and we started to put together the structure of what we're doing today, and really much not a lot has changed. It's, it's very much the same. Um, structurally. Now, the scale has obviously shifted a lot, but our goal was to have four week-long programs a year. We thought if we could get enough veterans, you know, 12 or 15 veterans at a time, four times a year, we'd be making a dent in this uh, this suicide pandemic, you know, and that was kind of mm-hmm. the big focus at the time. Um, but this year, by the end of this year, we will have done 35 weeks of programs in one of five locations across the country. Uh, about a thousand students will come through just this year, mm. so it's it is unbelievable. The scope is it's it's crazy. We've added a women's program, uh, <laughs> which that's a whole podcast. We can spend a lot of time talking about that. We but, will get to um, that. Yeah, added a women's program, and so uh, it's been unbelievable. And then the first responders piece um, again. That was one of those things where we just said we'll try it out. Uh, that's not you know kind of our gifting is to first responders. It's, we have the background of the veteran and we've served in combat. We understand that. Uh, but there's enough similarity. Let's try it out. We had one firefighter, actually, um, a good friend who had responded to nine 11. He was on the national response team. Um, when that all went down. So a lot of trauma, he came just one guy. We said, we'll try it out. He was extremely skeptical too, by the way. Uh, but he came because he was pushed into it. He was actually baptized on uh, 9-11. That was uh, the anniversary. Um, it's an unbelievable wow. story. But uh, he's now one of our team leaders. And since then, we've started a dedicated uh, focus or program for first responders. And we do a lot of work with uh, police departments. We do training in police departments now. And what's unique and what's crazy, 
about all of this, and I know we have a lot to talk about, but, but all of it is we were told early on that if we hang on to the faith piece, if you continue to talk about God, if you continue to talk about healing through Christ, uh, you'll never have access to veterans. And that's right. a big struggle. Uh, 44,000 some odd veteran organizations in the United States, a lot of organizations trying to help veterans, but very few have actual access to veterans you know, for a number of reasons. And we were told, if you continue to talk about God, you'll never have access to veterans. You definitely won't get into the first responder community. Um, and the complete opposite of that has been true. God has opened up so many doors for us because when healing is found, those who are absolutely broken don't care where it comes from, yep. and they tell their friends. And that's what we've seen again and again and again and again. So it's been uh, it's been pretty interesting. But yeah, the scale has certainly increased, but the core of what we do has has not really changed that much at all. Mm-hmm. Let's talk. Let's let's start talking about trauma because this is a word that gets used quite a bit yeah. um, today, for good or for bad. But yep. it's something that one way or another, men are not really good at talking about or or going into. And that was how I found my way into the world of masculinity. I'm not a first responder; didn't serve in the military, but I found my way into uh, an organization of men that works with everyday men's trauma, of which we all carry. And so when I started to understand what Mighty Oaks was doing, especially for communities that needed it so badly, um, I was immediately impressed because it's very difficult to get men to go into those spaces, but it's, yeah. so, it's so needed. So maybe we can start unpacking this idea of trauma yeah. and the way that you mean it and the way that men experience it and the effects that you've seen in their lives. Trauma is something that can be clinically diagnosed. There's a clinical definition for trauma, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual version 5, which is the most recent, I think it's being updated, but the most recent version. Um, And that is, you know, the Bible of uh, mental disorders, mental and emotional disorders that's used to define all of these things. That's what a clinician would use. And in that, there is an actual clinical definition of trauma, and it includes uh, exposure to death. That would be a near-death experience, viewing the death of someone that you care about, the loss of a loved one, sexual trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. These are very narrow categories, but a lot of veterans fall within those clinically diagnosable categories. In fact, we're told that in the United States, outside of the veteran community, about 70% of Americans will experience a clinically diagnosable traumatic event at some point in their life. I mean, that's an enormous number, 70% of Americans. Uh, will experience an event. And when you talk about you know, exposure to death, the loss of a loved one, uh, violence against the person, most often sexual violence, uh, that encompasses a lot of folks. But it's a very narrow definition. Um, it's one that veterans that come to us have often been diagnosed with because of their service in the military. Mm-hmm. But it's a starting point. And, and you know, for the sake of this conversation, I'll say this. A definition that I like better, <laughs> that doesn't always make it right, but I like it better. Um, a good friend of mine who is a retired um, army chaplain and sp- spent a lot of time writing about trauma, talking about trauma, dealing with post-traumatic stress. In fact, I would say he's one of the um, current experts on post-traumatic stress addressed from a faith perspective. He defines trauma as an event or series of events that pushes one beyond their ability to cope. An event or series of events that pushes one beyond their ability to cope. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem with definitions. They can be so narrow that they put people on islands. You are either someone who qualifies clinically to be, be uh, diagnosed with having encountered trauma and now dealing with post-traumatic stress and some of those other issues, 
And so you're on this island over here and you say, uh, a clinician, a doctor has diagnosed me with this illness, this brokenness, this disorder. And so if you're not a doctor, you can't help me. There's no help outside of that. I've been diagnosed. I'm on this island. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you have other people. And I think this is what you're talking about who would say, well, I'm struggling severely in my life because of circumstances, situations, emotional, relational, spiritual. There's these issues going on. They've pushed me beyond my ability to cope. I have a hard time getting up in the morning. I have a hard time going to work. Uh, I'm able to smile when I need to, but on the inside, I'm broken. In a lot of ways, I'm dead. But clinically, I would never be diagnosed with having encountered a traumatic event because what I'm struggling with is not tied to sexual trauma. It's not tied to death or you know those other issues. And so I'm on another island. And my island over here is, I guess what I have is not really a big deal. I guess I'm just going to have to deal with it. I guess there's not really any help for me. Mm-hmm. And my view of definitions is that they're only helpful if they serve as a bridge to get you to a place of healing. Definitions, they clear away the clutter. They help us to understand things so that we can get the healing we need. So all of that to say, I, I really appreciate the definition that is more broad in that what is, what is trauma? Well, it's an event that pushes you beyond your ability to cope. Something has happened in your life that pushes you beyond your ability to really get by. Now, you may be breathing, you may be functioning, uh, but in any meaningful sense, you're not moving forward. Uh, that's a trauma that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. We need to deal with whatever that issue is. We need to help you move beyond whatever that issue is, not get over it, not forget it, but move beyond it. And then we can talk about how we do that. And there are certainly you know biblical principles for doing that. Um, but when it comes to people who are hurting, it, it, it breaks my heart that so many people disqualify themselves from getting help. Uh, and we have this, this happen in our program. We'll talk to somebody and they'll say, well, I've never been in combat or uh, my combat experience was, was not like that guy's combat experience. I didn't experience anything too traumatic. And, and I'll then ask, well, you know, how are you doing? Uh, not well, <laughs> self-medicating. Yeah. Um, my marriage is falling apart. My kids aren't talking to me. I can't hold down a job, but because I didn't have this experience, it's just something I'm going to have to deal with. And that's uh, where a lot of men, unfortunately, find themselves. Uh, a lot of humans find themselves there, but, uh, yeah, trauma is something that is a, a human condition. And it's one that to one extent or another, we're all going to have to deal with, mm-hmm. but a lot of people just don't deal with it. Yeah, I say that trauma is part of, it's written on the back of the ticket to earth. You're just (laughs) going to get it. And to be really clear, um, maybe to some of the folks listening, like we're not talking about like, oh, my barista screwed up my Starbucks or it was traumatic, right? right? Like, because the word has gotten so comically overused in the past, say, five years or so, as it's lost the meaning. Like, like someone can be pushed past their ability to cope by something that is an everyday occurrence because they're just that fragile, right? Yeah. I might even argue, though, that that person is that fragile because they had previously been pushed really beyond their ability to cope, like a long, long time ago with a specific event. So, but we're yeah. talking about, you know, very, very serious things that occur in everyone's lives to varying extents of severity, but that yeah. truly impact impact the individual such that they have to struggle to stay afloat. And, and that's, the, that's one of the things that I think is really difficult for men to talk about because they're so good. Men are so good at working so hard that, that they just don't think twice about carrying right. that load until someone points it out to them. And you yeah. must see this all the time. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I, I heard uh, the quote 
you may even know who said it. I don't know who said it, but I heard the quote the other day that most men live lives of quiet desperation, mm-hmm. um, something like that. And yep. like that, reson- or something. Yeah. that resonates with me because I think that is right. Now, again, yeah, we're not talking about, uh, I saw a video the other day of, of a Starbucks barista. It was the barista himself who was like, I have to work eight hours. And he was crying because how, uh, how hard yeah, it was yeah. to work eight hours in a row, right? Like, yeah, yeah that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And, and so we need to, to push all that aside. That's another issue entirely. Um, but for men, we're talking about men who are doing their very best to lead families, who are doing their best to hold down jobs. And yet there's a brokenness in them that they know they can identify. Um, and it is a quiet desperation. It's, mm-hmm. I don't know how much longer I can do this. I'm not sure how much longer I can take this. Uh, I'm not sure how much longer I can push forward, but I'm going to continue doing it. And, um, it's, it's admirable that someone will continue to carry that load, even when they're under the burden of that load. However, there is a point at which you'll not any longer without help be able to carry that load. And that's what, that's what I'm talking about. Pushed beyond your ability to cope. Uh, I'm not coping now. I'm just moving on. I'm just Mm -hmm. moving forward. Eventually you're going to fall down. And, and I think that's what we need to identify. So you mentioned biblical principles to to help men work through trauma and move through it. Um, I'm very curious about that because, again, I came from this organization that worked more with like Jungian psychology and, and archetypes yeah. and stuff like that, which is effective to a point, but it's definitely not biblical and it comes with its own worldview attached. So this yeah. is a subject that I'm very interested in. What are some of those biblical principles and maybe even processes? Um, so I'll start with this. We wrote a a book. It's a resource available on our website called the truth about PTSD. It's a small book, about 10,000 words, something like that. 11,000 words. I wrote it. So it's not super deep, but, but it breaks out a lot of these things and some very clear principles. Um, biblically speaking, we spend a week breaking these down with folks and trying to help them understand what it is to move forward. Um, but principally we need to understand, first of all, that, um, Trauma is something we find in the Bible. And, and I, I think a lot of Christian people particularly dismiss this. I have pastors ask me all of the time um, what they can do to help veterans in their church because they aren't a veteran. They don't know how to, how to deal with these issues. If one knows how to rightly divide the word as you know a pastor should, uh, then they can apply those principles to people who are struggling to a point. Maybe they don't have the depth they need. They can then help them find someone who does. But the Bible has many, many examples of those who have dealt with trauma. And, you know, you walk through this. Think of Adam and Eve, right? Um, created perfect, perfect environment, communed with God, Genesis chapter 3 tells us. In the cool of the evening, they had this relationship where it was a face-to-face relationship with their creator, God. They rebelled against God. Sin comes into the world. Everyone knows the story. Think of the trauma of being tossed out of the garden and not allowed back in. We think of work. We think of these these things that are described in the early part of Genesis. Um, but that was completely foreign to Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Now they're living through that. Uh, when we think about regret, when we think about wishing we could go back and change our circumstance, the trauma that comes with that. I mean, imagine the trauma of that. Mm-hmm. Imagine the trauma of those same two people because of their sin being pushed out of the garden, now finding one son murdered by another son. Uh, I don't know who it was that found uh, Cain killed by Abel, Abel killed by Cain, <laughs> get that backwards. Um, I don't know who it was, but can you imagine the trauma to, to the first parents of yeah. uh, one of their children killing another child? You go to Genesis chapter six and 
we look at the story of of, of Noah. I, this one always blows me away. I was raised in church, and every nursery I've ever seen has a picture of the ark and the animals getting on the ark, and it's a very happy picture. Um, probably the most traumatic event in the entire Bible, apart from the crucifixion, is the flood. Mm-hmm. The entire population of the earth is wiped out. Noah, who's been preaching at his friends and neighbors for 120 years, uh, rejected by them, is inside of that boat with his family. The door is closed by God. As the water begins to rise, I mean, I imagine this picture of his friends and family outside of the ark now finally understanding what he was saying, screaming, scratching, banging on the side of that uh, boat, and there's nothing he can do about it. Mm-hmm. Is it any wonder then that he eventually will self-medicate? We find that later in the same story. Um, I mean, incredible trauma. We think of the traumas of a guy like David. The sixth Psalm is David crying out to God, talking about uh, filling his couch with tears and the brokenness and the dryness of his bones and the despair, asking God how long. Uh, you go all the way to the New Testament and you find Jesus who is in the garden. And I just wrote about this this week on my blog, uh, Jesus in the garden crying out to God the Father for our benefit to understand what we need to do in situations like that as he expresses, not my will, but thine be done. But the despair and the grief, even in Jesus and his humanity, where he sweat, the Bible says, as it were, drops of blood um, as he's making his way to the cross incredible trauma. So we find this throughout scripture. That's a good place to start. We need to understand that trauma is a human condition and it's one that is experienced by everyone. If Jesus didn't get out of it, we're not going to get out of it either. Mm -hmm. It then begins principally to move to a place where we find our identity, not in what has happened to us, but in whose, uh, in whom we are, we are, uh, to be in God through Christ. We are to have a relationship with God through Christ. We find our identity in who he is, not in what has happened to us. And so much of our trauma is tied to what has happened in the past. And we have to come to a point where we decide, we make a decision (laughs) that we're not going to allow that trauma to define us any longer. Uh, This is me, but I don't like it when people uh, define themselves or call themselves survivors. And you'll see this on even some organizations, survivors network, you know, those kind of things. I'm a survivor. That's how people will define themselves. It's one thing to have survived trauma, but to then take that moniker upon yourself, I am a survivor. You're someone who has survived, but that trauma should not define you. Again, going back to the Bible, Romans chapter uh, seven, where Paul declares, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I mean, crying out to God, Romans chapter eight and verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When we find our identity in Christ, the shed blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins that comes with a relationship with him, being reconciled to God the Father, that is our identity. Our identity then is no longer what's happened to us in the past. And that's when our story can be redeemed. What is redeemed? It is to find value in that which once had no value. It is redemption. Now, our story, our past has um, a purpose It's been redeemed by God. So it's first understanding this is common because the lie that we tell ourselves is I'm the only one who's ever experienced this. Mm -hmm. I can't get past it. On the other side of that, it's common. Refuse to be broken. Make a decision that you are not going to allow your past to define you. Well, in that, then you can't let your past be identified or your, your present be identified by your past. 
find your identity in Jesus Christ, and then begin to take the steps necessary to move forward. How can I move forward into that identity? Well, I read God's word. I understand what his plan for my life is. I understand what he has created me to do and to be. Our programs, uh, Mighty Oaks programs, are broken up into men's programs and women's programs. A lot of reasons for that. But one of the big reasons, probably the main reason, is because we talk about trauma, but more than anything, we talk about what God created you as a man to be. What does it mean to be a man as created by God? What does it mean to be a woman as created by God? That's what you need to understand. Where do you find that? You find that in scripture. You spend time in the word, uh, allowing God's word to show you what he would have for you to do, having already committed that you're going to live that out. You spend time in prayer. That is expressing your uh, need, your dependence on God and allowing his Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and to your life. You take the steps forward in community. That is getting people around you who are a little bit further along than you are, who can help you, who can encourage you, who can mentor you. You have to have the right people in your life. Uh, in the Christian community, we find this often should in the context of a local church. And there are often groups within uh, local churches that can help with that as well. And then we have people in our lives, specific people in our lives who can speak truth into our lives, one or two steps removed from our problem. So they're not emotionally invested necessarily in the problem but they care about us and they can help us to move forward. Um, again, using scripture, using the Bible. This is what God would have for you to do and they can help you to move forward in the light of that truth. Uh, on the other side of that, I think reconciliation is very important. The Bible talks often about reconciliation. If we've broken relationships because of our trauma and um, you know what has happened to us is never an excuse to behave badly and yet a lot of us do. <laughs> Yep. Uh, and so we need to acknowledge that. Um, that may be a reason, but it's not a very good reason, not a good excuse. And so go back and begin to repair the relationships that were broken because of your trauma. That is a major point of moving forward. We can't allow those things to linger. Again, love the story of Jesus. He's been crucified. Um, his disciples are hiding <laughs> in an upper room. The door is locked. They don't know what to do next. What does Jesus do? He went and found them. In fact, he walked through the wall. He presented himself to them and he renewed or restored what was a broken relationship. And from that, the greatest movement of evangelism the world has ever known takes place. Mm -hmm. But it began with a renewed or restored relationship. We need to renew and restore relationships where we can. Some relationships we've hurt so badly, there will never be full reconciliation but we need to accept fully our part in the brokenness of those relationships and allow those to move forward. I think uh, finally, and again, we spent a week talking about this, but finally, we need to have a clear picture of forgiveness. Um, and, you know, I have not heard you talk about forgiveness, so I won't put words in your mouth, but I'll tell you how I see forgiveness. We talk often about forgiving ourselves. And, um, from a, a biblical position, I, I don't know that we can forgive ourselves because we're not God, but what we can do is accept the forgiveness that God, through Jesus Christ, has made possible for us. Um, to forgive ourselves is to let ourselves off the hook. Unfortunately, we're not in a position to do that. Yep. However, God has done it through Christ, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. It's accepting the forgiveness. We hold ourselves to account for things that God through Christ has forgiven. We need to accept that forgiveness so that we're free to fully move forward. 
a lot of nuance in that, a lot of other things that go along with that. But it's understanding trauma is common. I'm not going to allow, I refuse to allow my identity to be wrapped up in what has happened to me. I'm going to find a relationship with God through Christ that allows me to move forward. I'll learn what he wants me to do, having committed to do that. I'll spend time in prayer so the Holy Spirit can minister to me as I express my dependence on him. I'm in a community of believers that can encourage me, edify me um, to do the right thing. And then I have specific people in my life who have the freedom or the liberty to speak into that. And doing that, I um, then am able to move forward, reconciling where I can reconcile, accepting the forgiveness and the freedom that comes from that forgiveness offered by Christ. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. That's all. That's incredibly powerful stuff. And, and, and that really lands for me. And, and I find myself imagining what it must be like for the veterans who come on the, the Mighty Oaks program, who go on the, the week and are mm. exposed to in a private environment. Yep. Right. You know, where it, it looks like a gorgeous environment as well yep. out in nature, yep. these ranches being preached the word in that way that they've, I, I'm going to, I feel pretty confident saying they've probably never heard it before because sure. it's hard to find that. Right. Yep. I mean, maybe you can, maybe you can relate a story, you know, of, of, of men or stories of men that you've seen transformed by preaching like that, by those, yep. I, by those very ideas. What is, is uh, insane and, it is insane, man. What yeah. we do is like so weird. And and <laughs> we've had these conversations. We're about past the point. And I think we are kind of past the point where we still have these like internal like sidebar conversations. We're like, I hope this works, right? Right. Um, but what we do is so simple. We call ourselves a faith-based nonprofit. And so what a lot of people on the outside take that to mean is it's a program for Christian veterans and service members. And it's absolutely not. It's a program run by Christian veterans and service members. And we have a specific methodology that is, is scriptural. Um, but most of the folks, particularly, you know, when we were in the throes of war, so a lot of these combat veterans, um, they are only attending our program because they have nowhere else to go. <laughs> so they have tried the clinical programs, the therapies, they've done the other things. And I'm not against all of those things, by the way. I think there are a lot of helpful tools, therapies, um, clinical tools, even medication in its place. Um, again, that's a big discussion. Right. But those are not necessarily bad. They're tools that can be used. They're just not a solution to the problem because it's a spiritual problem. Uh, trauma affects us spiritually. We could talk about things like moral injury. That's a spiritual issue. So they've tried all this stuff. They have nowhere else to go. Our program is free. Our program doesn't cost anything even to, to get there. We cover the cost of travel. Wow. So apart from the week that it takes to be with us in one of those ranch locations that you mentioned, beautiful locations, um, apart from that week, there is no other commitment. So they've tried everything else. Um, they will come to us because a friend, a family member, often a spouse says, you've got to do this. We've had many guys on day one stand up and say, because it'll be one of those introduce yourself things, right? Yep. Uh, we want to know your name, your 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 uh, service, and uh, why you're here. And many, many, many times over the years, we've had men stand up and say, I'm here because if this doesn't work, then I don't know what I'm going to do after this. Or if this doesn't work, then I'm going to go home and I'm probably going to end my life. Yeah. Um, and that's where we start. That's Monday night. We start with uh, what I call the big end of the funnel. It's a little bit of Jesus that's going to get us to a lot of Jesus later on in the week. 
but we're very testimonial focused and very testimonial based. One of the issues working with the group that we work with, that is veterans and military and first responders, is that they have up this wall. It's, it's a facade. It's not a real wall, but it's something that shields them from the rest of the world where they're able to say, you can't speak into what I'm dealing with because you haven't experienced it. Yep. So all of our instructors are men or women who have experienced it. Um, veterans, combat veterans, first responders, those who have lived the life. So on day one, they stand up. The first person gives an opening, what we call an opening testimony, and they tell their story. All of our instructors have come through our program as students. On the other side of them being a student, we take those that will become instructors through a year-long leadership training process, which is a lot of discipleship, um, a lot of us pouring into them to the point that they can stand up now in front of a group of folks and say, let me tell you my story. This is where I was when I came here. Uh, This is what I had done. This is what I was experiencing. In many cases, this is where I am now. I'm still working through this, but this is how I'm moving forward. This is what I've learned. And, And here are some of the things you'll learn this week. We end that first night by saying, look, you may not believe any of this. Uh, some of you hate God, don't believe in God, uh, think this this faith thing is crazy. That's fine. Believe whatever you want to. No one's going to make you believe anything, but we're asking you to simply contrast the life that you're living to the life that we're going to present over the next couple of days. And then we teach a series of classes. We teach a class on very simple topics like character, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. legacy, what are you leaving behind? These very simple topics. They're all taught, though, from a testimonial standpoint. The person standing there spends the first 15 minutes telling their story. Then they teach the class. The class leads into an hour-long discussion in a small group with, again, uh, someone who once was a student of the program and is moving forward in their own lives. And then we do that again and again and again the entire week. And it's unbelievable. Monday night, it's kind of like, this may be the one where no, where no one responds. Yeah. Um, but by Wednesday afternoon and certainly Thursday morning, uh, rarely is there a person who hasn't, I mean, their physical demeanor has changed, their outlook has changed, their perspective has changed. And those who on Monday said, I'm not even sure why I'm here, Thursday afternoon, when we give everyone an opportunity to tell their story, they'll stand up and for 20 minutes talk about what has happened in their life during the course of that week. Uh, it's unbelievable when a broken person makes a decision to begin moving forward. It's amazing. I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about because I've, I've been in a lot of very similar rooms, you know, and experiences where men are given the chance to um, drop the wall and right. share who, <clears throat> right. who they are and what they've been right. through and, and, and share things that they've never told anybody before. Right. And it's to, to witness that is it's a profound yeah. gift. It, it changed to witness that for the first time changed my life like 10 yeah. years ago. There's so much power in, in just sharing your story. And so that's yeah. why we lead with testimony. We're not going to ask you to do something we're not willing to do. We have so many thoughts rolling around in our brain and, and often those unrestrained thoughts create these, these lies that we start to believe. But when we get in a safe place where we know we can tell a story with other people that they at least get it enough to connect with it, and it's not going to go anywhere else. We, we, I mean, we beat that drum all week. This is a uh, <clears throat> confidentiality is very important here. Um, we're not going to share what happens here with anyone else. Um, there's no record of this. It's not a clinical program. That's one of the reasons 
active duty military and first responders attend. And, and when you get to that place where you realize it's safe, they've led, I've seen them do it. They're not asking me to do something I haven't. And you talk about those things that have been going on in your heart and mind in many cases for years. The, the power of that is absolutely unbelievable. And uh, again, you've seen it. Uh, a lot of people think it's silly. I'll tell you a funny story or an interesting story. Um, there's a lot going on in Ukraine right now, but in 2019, my wife and I uh, went to Ukraine uh, to work with a church that's there. They were putting on a military conference. So this is a conference for U- Ukrainian military people, soldiers, and their families. Um, they were fighting even then, so we forget that, but they've been fighting for a mm-hmm. long time. Pulled them off the eastern uh, border, brought them to a place, and we said, here's what we want to do. We want to teach these classes and then we want to have the participants go into small groups. So the women can go with some women. We have some facilitators here. And the men can go with the men. And <laughs> everyone there said that will never work. Culturally, that will never work. Men won't talk. Women won't talk. It's not going to work. I said, look, please let me try it. Mm-hmm. We had been there the year before. They shut it down. And I just said, okay. We came back the next next year, 2019. I said, you've got to let me try it. If it doesn't work, we'll never do it again, but let me try it. We did it. And uh, <laughs> our hour-long small group discussion times turned into multi-hour small group discussion times. Um, because as humans, this is not cultural. As humans, we want to connect with other people that get it. And we've got to share what's going on in our hearts and minds. And mm-hmm. being able then to put that in a biblical context is extremely powerful. Mm. It must be even more powerful to do this with um, with soldiers, veterans who are used to having that wall up. That's yeah. you know you can't understand my experience because you weren't there. And there's truth to that, but it's also it's also a pretty it's also a pretty powerful excuse, right? You know, like yeah. yes, there's truth. I wasn't there. You're yeah. right, but like it's not impossible for me to imagine. It's like no, yeah, no, right. I'm going to hide behind this. Right. It, what What's funny is, in you know, for anyone who served in the military, they could attest to this. I think. I came from an infantry background, infantry community. So um, infantry Marines for me, soldiers, you know, sailors and airmen in their, in their context, um, talking about what's going on in your life, that brotherhood, that closeness, that shoulder to shoulder thing um, is very common. And so we have this idea that those who served in the military, they're not that kind of person that would sit down and talk to other people about what's going on with them. Yes, they are because they will and they do. What they don't want to do right now is share their struggles currently with people that they think they've disqualified for some reason um, that cannot possibly understand them, that don't know what it is to hurt, right? And so all we're doing is putting them in a very similar situation to what they were in in the military, a very similar environment with the same kind of people. And now they're able to share in a very comfortable way because. That's what they they lost, if you will, when they left the military, or that's what they're struggling with without that brotherhood and those connections. And so we're putting them back into uh, that environment, and it's um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty crazy to see. We've had veterans from Vietnam. We've had one uh, Korea Korean War veteran come, and uh, it's always this weird like, well, I'm a lot older than these guys. And about 15 minutes later, you wouldn't know other than the age that there's anything different, right? Because yeah. Um, the heart of that warrior is to talk to other warriors who have been there and experienced it. And um, again, it's, it is, it's super powerful. Yeah. And, and then on the other side of that, we try to work through that 
to the point that by the end of the week, those students understand you have a unique experience, but that little girl who was, you know, molested as a child, um, the domestic abuse in homes, whatever. I mean, there's a thousand different places that people have been far more traumatized than you (laughs) because of your voluntary service in the military. And that's not to diminish military service at all. Um, But there's a lot of trauma in the world and a lot of hurt in the world. And to disqualify people just because they don't have the same kind of trauma as you uh, is really not helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it doesn't build any bridges, right? Like my experience of having worked through trauma of my own and work with men working through trauma is that, yeah, Ultimately, the the success can be measured in how more, much more clearly you see the world, right? Trauma, like working through trauma, doesn't turn you into a into a Superman. It helps you <laughs> right. see the trauma that every that's every right. individual in the it's a world of compassion that opens. Yeah, up. that's good. That's good. Yeah, uh, the it it should. Um, there's a, a well known quote from General James Mattis, who, um, you know, we all used to idolize and we don't idolize anymore, but. <laughs> But he he talked about post-traumatic stress and he talked about that. He talked about how, um, you know, on the other side of trauma, uh, we should be more compassionate because we understand what it is to hurt. We understand what it is to feel. And the fact that God can use our stories to benefit others, that's that's what Mighty Oaks is. It's it's people who have said, I've got a story and we're going to use that. We're going to try to help some people with that story because they have stories and they have people that they need to help. And um yeah, I, I mean, there's nothing really more powerful than that. That's what we have. We have our story. Mm-hmm. And you, you also mentioned the forgiveness piece and um, the accepting of forgiveness is is huge because my experience with trauma is also that it's not just the event that happened, the thing that was done to you or the thing that you experienced, but then there's all the mistakes that you made as a result of that after, that have to be worked through before the, the whole process is complete. Yeah. And that can be, depending on the individual, the trauma and the experiences, absolutely grueling to do. So this is what you just described is, uh, is so insightful. And I, I've tried to explain this to folks, you know, over and over again, it's hard to deconstruct this, but most of the time, what we deal with at Mighty Oaks, when it comes to the, the issues, big bucket, but the issues that people are experiencing are not really from the trauma, people outside of this world, they think that trauma is what they've seen on TV. They think it's flashbacks. They think it's waking up in the night, middle of the night screaming and all those things. Yeah. And some of that certainly does happen. A very, very, very small percentage of, of people dealing with trauma, particularly combat trauma, that's what they're experiencing. What they're dealing with are the bad decisions on the other side of that trauma. They're dealing with uh, drug and alcohol abuse. They're dealing with... Uh, you know, illicit relationships. They're dealing with anger that somehow is excused in their own heart and mind because of what they've been through, but it's destroying every relationship in their life. It's the reason their kids don't want to talk to them. The reason their marriage is falling apart. The reason they can't hold down a job. There has to be a point in your life where you you stop the bad behavior by accepting responsibility for yourself and accepting responsibility for your actions, acknowledging The reason I feel the way that I do, the reason I naturally respond in many of these ways is because of the trauma that I've endured. But acknowledging that means that I can get the help that I need structurally to make sure I'm not destroying everyone around me. And again, when it goes back to what you said a minute ago about being more compassionate, 
uh, man, the grace that we should have for others when we are coming out of our own struggle, it should be enormous. What's crazy is we all want grace from others, but very often fail to give that grace to others. Yeah. But what we should be doing is saying, I know what it is to hurt. I know what it is to struggle. I know what it is to make bad decisions on the other side of that struggle. I know what it is to feel alone and to feel dark and to feel overwhelmed. I know what that's like. And I can see that in you. And I want to help you move past that. Let's, let's figure this thing out together. That's what the response should be. I feel like now would be a good time to, for you to share a little bit about your story so that the men and women listening understand like this is coming from experience, right? Right. So, um, yeah, my story is a little bit different, but it's different because of the people I had in my life before, (laughs) before I started doing stupid stuff. Um, I was raised in a, I was raised in a good home. My, my, my dad, uh, was a pastor for almost 35 years. Um, started a church in a small town here in Southern California. And, uh, you know, I was raised in that environment. It was a great environment. Um, when I was 14, uh, realizing that I did not want to be in ministry, I uh, went to my dad, my dad and I said, hey, dad, would it be all right if uh, I did something other than ministry with my life? I was 14 years old, right? And uh, he said, son, do whatever God wants you to do, because that's what pastor dads are supposed to say. And I said, well, I think that God wants me to enlist in the Marine Corps. He's like, God does not want you to enlist in the Marine Corps. There's no way God wants that. Uh, look at the Air Force, maybe a garbage man, like do something else. Um, but um, on the other side of that, he was actually very supportive and, and said, look, you can do whatever you believe God wants you to do. But before that, you're going to go to college and this is the college you're going to go to. And so uh, they helped with that. That's where God wants you to go. Yeah, this is where God wants you to go. And I know that because uh, we're going to put you there. Um <laughs> So I opened a college catalog and said, what would I not mind studying for four years? That's why I have a criminal justice degree. So I uh, thought, yeah, that that sounds fun. Um, So in that process, because I went to college, I went through a commissioning program. I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in uh, 1999. And um, uh, from college, long way around, ended up at Camp Pendleton here in Southern California and uh, served with 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. I was an infantry platoon commander. Um, went on a uh, deployment to, o- to Okinawa. And then in 2003, our battalion deployed to Kuwait. And, you know, at that time, there were a lot of unanswered questions. One was, why are we in Iraq? <laughs> or why are we sitting outside of Iraq, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, a lot of reasons were given. And so we were sitting on the, the border, on the south side of the border in Kuwait. And uh, a lot of it was a show of force. We spent a couple of months just kind of running up to the border, then pulling back. And we did that for a few months. But on March 19th of 2003, uh, we moved into the country. First Battalion, 5th Marines, my battalion, was the kind of the center axis of advance for the 1st Marine Division. We breached the berm, secured the southern objective on the southern border of Iraq. Uh, First KIA of the war was Lieutenant Shane Childers, one of our lieutenants. Mm. Um, That was the the first day of the war. I was. at that point, I had been in the battalion for a while. I was navigating for our battalion, about 1,200 Marines. I was navigating, so I was a second vehicle back um, as we made our way from Kuwait into Iraq and then eventually to Baghdad. Um, April 10th, uh, we had a, a major event in Baghdad. Uh, we had over 100 casualties. Um, it's called the Battle of Baghdad, if people would like to look it up. It was just a psycho, <laughs> psycho event. Um, but that all happened. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, we retrograded back to Kuwait and came home. I had always said that I wouldn't go into ministry, but God got a hold of my heart. And I had already committed to working at um, 
the church that we were attending in Oceanside, California, before we deployed. I didn't know we were going to deploy. And so I said, I'm going to get out. And uh, the pastor said, well, why don't you come on staff? I don't know what I'll have you do, but um, we've got a lot of stuff going on. It was a growing church. We'll have you do projects. We'll have you manage stuff. Won't be ministry per se, but we'll have you do some stuff here at the church. That's <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Um, I was young and dumb and uh, said, yeah, that, that sounds great. So came home from Iraq, June of 2003, July 1st of 2003. I was on the staff of our church and uh, it took me about a week to realize I was completely lost, mm. which is funny because I had been raised in a Christian home. I went to a Christian college. Um, it wasn't the church that was confusing for me. It was my place in the world. I was married. Um, my wife and I had been married for a couple of years at that point, had two little kids, and I was just a mess. I, mm. A lot of people have asked me if it was post-traumatic stress. 2003, we weren't talking about post-traumatic stress, uh, certainly not like we are now. I'm sure that was some of it. A lot of it, though, for me, was just a complete loss of identity. I had pointed my entire life to doing a job from the time I was 14 years old. Um, ultimately, my goal was to lead Marines in combat, which I did. Um, it was early on in the war. Most people thought when the shooting stopped in Baghdad that the war was over, which for me opened up a world of opportunity in the Marine Corps had I stayed in. Um, people that I respected that had never talked to me before were now saying things like, hey, you know, the future is bright. We need young officers to uh, move forward. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? And I got out. I started working at our church and I couldn't get volunteers to do what I wanted them to do. I went from leading Marines in combat to trying to get people to, you know, like clean the bathrooms on Saturday night. Um, other staff members, I, I, I dealt with the way I would in an infantry battalion, uh, staff meetings, I'd get upset and start yelling. Uh, I was a complete disaster on the church staff. Then I'd go home and uh, take it out on my wife and kids. Um, and I've shared this before, but the fact that my wife stayed with me through that period of time is, is a testimony to the grace of God and, and her love for God, not for me at that time, I don't think, but certainly mm -hmm. for God. Um, and after about 11 months of that, you know, it was a constant me talking about what I had done and how important I was and what people didn't know about me <laughs> and, and uh, just, just angry, a mess. Um, about 11 months of that, the pastor finally called me into his office and said, look, man, I love you. I don't know what's going on with you. Again, PTSD, post-traumatic stress, all this stuff. This is not something anyone was talking about in 2003. And so he said, he said, I don't know what's going on with you, but I know you can't be here anymore. <laughs> and um, I'll help you find another place to go. Um, but I don't know where that place is, but you've got to make a decision. You're either here or you're not here. And this is Friday. Um, Monday, I want you to go somewhere, spend a week with your wife, figure out what you're going to do and come back and tell me. And that was kind of our discussion is, you know, it's funny. We're very good friends um, now. Um, in fact, all these years later, 20 years later, um, I'm a deacon at the church and not on staff, which is, you know, probably a better way. <laughs> but um, he just didn't know what to do. I had no idea how to deal with what I was dealing with, but he was the only person at that time in my life that had confronted me with like, this is unacceptable. <laughs> this is not okay. And there are going to be real consequences. Uh, spent a week with my wife and started to take responsibility for some of my behavior. Um, still didn't exactly know how to move forward, but 
started taking one step at a time and she helped me and past, the pastor helped me and I stayed on the staff there for another four years. Um, I tell that story and my wife and I do a lot of teaching together now. And um, a couple of years ago, I was telling that story and I said, it took me about a year to get over you know, the trauma of combat and the loss of identity and all that. All that it took me about a year. And she stopped me and like publicly said, no, it took about 10 years. Um, it's a long process and it really is a long process. Uh, after five years of being on that staff, I pastored a church for seven years. So, you know, you do the math that 10 years she was talking about included while I was pastoring, I'm doing marriage counseling. Um, I'm, I'm preaching and teaching. And, and she would tell you, she was sitting here. There were times where she would sit there and hear me preach on a topic like marriage or a topic like family or whatever the case, and just get so angry because what I was saying and what I was preaching from the Bible was not what I was doing. And you know, again, God is good. And it took a lot of work to get to the place where, um, you know, we're not there anymore. We've been married for 25 years this coming year. And it's, it's been a lot of, um, a lot of work and a lot of up and down and a lot of the right people coming into my life and helping me. And Mighty Oaks has been a big part of that. Um, you can choose in ministry to be a hypocrite if you want to be. Uh, but when you're, ministry role is confronting others about the brokenness in their lives. You need to deal with what's going on in your own life. And that's been a big part of it for me. I was pastoring in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. I met Chad and Mighty Oaks was getting started. And we started work together and uh, eventually resigned the church so I could take on a full-time role with Mighty Oaks. And um, I Went to a program. Chad was getting started with Mighty Oaks, having a hard time getting people to attend. Um, some Marines that I'd served with 10 years earlier. So part of that first year for me was walking away from, from all of that. Like, I'm thankful for my service, but I just can't do it anymore. If I want to move forward, I, I can't think about it, talk about it, stay connected to these people. So 10 years later, a guy reached out to me that I had served with and said, hey, met this guy. He's starting this thing. Uh, he's a Christian. I'm not, but you are. <laughs> and I thought you might need to connect. And so I ended up going to um, um, Colorado. A group of Marines that I had served with were there. And man, it was crazy. Uh, I've got this jumping all over, but I've got this picture hanging over my office uh, desk in my office. It's a picture of my platoon in, uh, in Baghdad. My Marines gave it to me when we came home. And uh, I've looked at that picture for 20 years, and I've always been grateful for the opportunity that I had to not only lead, but to bring those, those Marines home. I was 25, 26, um, so I was pretty young, but we had 17-year-old Marines, 18, 19, 20, of course, so young men, brought them all home. 10 years later, I was sitting in a room in Colorado, there's a fire going, sitting around some Marines that I hadn't seen in 10 years, and they started to tell stories about some of those guys in that picture who had committed suicide, who's... Uh, marriages had, you know, been a disaster and ended. Other Marines who were killed in combat. One of the guys who I have a relationship with now, who was sitting there um, in that setting, he said, I "I've hated you for almost ten years," and I hadn't talked to him in ten years. He said, "You said you'd always be there for us. You took us into combat. You said you'd always take care of us, and then you were gone. And then we went back. He was in Fallujah after that. So seven months later, he was back in combat." And we worked through that. We had, a, it was a good thing, but that was the first time in my life I realized that um, putting the uniform back in the closet doesn't mean that you're done serving, that I had an obligation, not just as a Marine, 
but as a Christian, as someone that had learned some things and worked through some things to help others to move forward as well. And, you know, that started with, you know, kind of my people, the guys that I had served with. And uh, again, God's been very gracious and I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of those guys since then. But yeah, it's a, it's a crazy journey. And it, it began with me just really hurting really bad and not knowing where to go or, or who I was or what that looked like and struggling through that, having my family speak into that, having a wife who probably hated me a lot, but did her best to encourage me to be what God wanted me to be and having friends and a pastor that did their very best to pour into me when there were no resources available for that kind of thing. Um, and then falling down a lot and getting back up a lot <laughs> and feeling like it just wasn't worth it a lot, but then continuing to move forward when you realize there are some people that need you to keep moving forward and need you to pour into their lives. And that's, <laughs> I mean, in a nutshell, that's kind of mighty Oaks and that's what we do. It's, it's that it's, a lot of hurt, messed up people who found redemption through Christ, um, helping other people find the same redemption. Thank you for sharing all that. Yeah. That must be very disarming for, um, for the men that go on Mighty Oaks programs to see themselves and hear themselves and their own stories reflected in your life. Because I think it would be easy for a man to come into the weekends like, oh, here's Jeremy Stalnecker. He's got it yeah. all figured out. He always has, yeah. right? This big organization, and you you share that it's like no, I haven't been this guy my whole life, right? Yeah. That's everything that this that the Renaissance of Men is about. It, it's funny too, and you do a great job with this. Um, but the Christian community at large does not do a very good job with this. It's a very whitewashed um, perspective or perception. It this this is what drives me nuts about most Christian ministry. Uh, particularly Christian men's ministry, is until you're willing to be transparent about your own story, there's no way that you're going to find the help that you need. And there's no way that other people are going to find the help that they need. I, I've been asked you know, many, many, many times by church leaders, church men's group leaders often, how do we get the same thing? How do we get the, the you know, that environment that Mighty Oaks creates? How do we get it? Sometimes I just shrug my shoulders and go, I don't think you're going to get it <laughs> mm -hmm. because Christian men in churches are unwilling to be honest with one another and really talk about what's going on in their heart and their minds. And until you're willing to get to that place, and I get to struggle with that. We have the benefit of confidentiality. We have the benefit of isolation for a week. We have the benefit of kind of that camp environment. I, I understand all of that. But if you as a man don't have someone else in your life that you can be 100% honest with, you're never going to be fully what you need to be. And that's just a truth. And so, yes, it is very disarming for guys that show up at one of our programs. Um, but I'll tell you, that's the path forward for, you know, any man that really wants to fully be what God created them to be. It can be very difficult to create environments where men feel safe enough, yep. you know, to share things like yep. that. So, so the men's work that I've done, like, so the Mighty Oaks program is a week, right? So men show up on Sunday and then the program Correct. starts on Monday and by Thursday or Friday, you yep. know, the, the real meat of the stuff happens. So the programs that I've been a part of for, for um, civilian men are about 48 hours, but yep. the whole first 12 hours is spent with a very precise series of events that break down men's walls to get them to the point where they yes. can share Yes, because we're not dealing with 
generally with combat veterans, right? Right, where it's like the where where there isn't going to be some sort of like significantly violent outburst from a very dangerous man, right? So so right. to cr- but to create that environment, however you do it, is very very difficult to do, um, and it has to be done with thought and done with care, and and this is this is what men's ministry is, and we've lost those technologies, right? It seems, or they never existed in the church to begin with. I'm not sure which, but it, it can be done. It just has to be done the right way because men are the same, whether they're Christian or not. This is a, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I think this is a dilemma. This is a, this is a dilemma for me as a guy in ministry. Um, for a pastor, for a ministry leader, there is a feeling, and some of it's true, unfortunately, that if I am transparent with the men in my church, they're going to hold that against me. Or they will not respond to what I say because they'll always be able to say, yeah, but you also, we know these things about you. And so there is a perception, I think, amongst ministry leaders where I've got to be very careful. I think this is why pastors struggle so much. Because who does a pastor talk to? They're trying to lead people forward. They need to be transparent, but only to a point. Mm-hmm. That line is very fuzzy. And so what they end up with is not having anyone that they can talk to because other pastors, let's be honest, are not always good at um, helping those uh, <laughs> those around them and those in need. And so it is a very interesting environment that is created in a mm-hmm. church setting. Um, and so breaking that down requires someone to take the first step, requires someone to go first to, to tell their story, to be willing to talk about hurt. And, and difficulty and, you know, pornography use and alcohol abuse and uh, being unkind to their family and breaking down the perception that they built up for the other men in their church. But there is a liability that comes with that. Mm-hmm. And I think often that's what we focus on is the liability. Mm-hmm. And we want to protect our own family and we want to protect the reputation of, you know, spouse and others. So. Um, It is a tricky environment, and I understand that what we do is different because most of the guys who come to us could absolutely care less, and and their life is out in the street anyhow in many ways, Um, and so there's that understanding as well. Um, But it's different in ministry, and it's and it's certainly a challenge. That's a really that's a really great question. That's a really great question, and and and, um, I can see and feel the sense of the struggle. That a pastor might have right. wanting to be in a leadership position and needing to tell their story in order to create that sense of safety for the other men, and yet still needing to be a moral leader on yeah. the following Sunday. Yeah. Like, is my moral leadership compromised now that you know this thing about me that that yeah. um, that you that that I didn't want you to know? That's a great it, question, and it's crazy too because we'll see guys who who they have a reputation for having. Um, you know, I don't know. They 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 had a moral failure of some kind. It's very public. Everyone knows about it. And so they're able to lead from that place in, in a weird kind of upside down way. Yeah. They're able to lead from that place. But the everyday struggle that every guy in the world has, for some reason, we can't talk about that. We can talk about, you know, I had an affair and this happened and then that happened. And then, you know, through two years of intense counseling, I was restored, whatever that story is. And we see that story play out and people will respond to that. But if a pastor stands up and says, 
you know, I was feeling alone. My wife was gone and mm. I ended up on a website I shouldn't have been on. And I've talked to her about that and I've repented of that, but I'm sharing that with you just so you understand that's a common struggle. Um, that could destroy a guy's ministry. And yeah, Andy knows that. So what's the answer in that? I don't know what the answer is, but I think transparency to some degree <laughs> has to lead the way in order for men to find help and healing. That's why the counseling relationship is really helpful and, and important. And perhaps why, you know, men's small groups are also helpful as well. It, it provides a layer of distance between, you know, those men and, and, um, senior, senior leadership. I don't know. Yeah. It's mm. uh, it's definitely an interesting dilemma for sure. Could this be, could this, could part of this be an, un, a set of unrealistic expectations that pastors be perfect, perfect men. Right. I mean, cause there's, there's, de- there's degrees of sin, right? Like it's one thing right. like, I ended up on a website I shouldn't have been on yeah. and then I close it right away versus like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I called an escort, right? Like yeah, right. A whole sure, big, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So like, yeah. so, so to what degree, to what degree do we hold pastors to too high of a standard? Right. And, and what's the function of that versus, and to what degree does that have to do with like having, you know, congregations of hundreds or even thousands of people, right. Versus a smaller church of like 50 people. Like yeah. maybe there's something not necessarily in the nature of being a pastor, but in that people are placing like they're men, we're men, yeah, right. We do. Yeah, we, I, we should be held to a higher standard, but we are still men. I think you're right. So this is, you know, these are topics I have in my own brain. Like I have these discussions <laughs> in my own mind sometimes. Sure, but there is kind of been a move amongst evangelical pastors to be extremely transparent, right? Like all your personal stuff is out for the whole world to see. That's not what I'm talking about, right? Because there's nothing constructive about that. What that does is that literally gives an excuse to the other people in your church to live lives that are less than holy. <laughs> I, I think the the line has to come back to a place where, um, you know, a pastor is able to reveal, I have struggles just like everyone else has struggles. Maybe name them if you need to name them in the right environment. Maybe this isn't in a congregational setting, but it is in a men's setting or something. And talk about the struggles, but talk about what was done on the other side of that. And how did you reconcile that? Uh, how did you get right you know, with God and with the mm-hmm. others in those relationships on the other side of that? Um, I think that's what's missing from this kind of like celebrity pastor group that's like, oh, no, you put it all out there and I do this and I do that and I'm just a man. And no, no, like, like that's, that's not living to certainly the standard of a pastor, but that's Mm -hmm. not even living a holy life. You need to live a holy life, not a perfect life, but a holy life, which is a life that gives reverence and deference to God. So acknowledging the struggle, acknowledging the difficulty, but also acknowledging that there is, you know, redemption, there is forgiveness, um, repentance is required, Mm -hmm. and we should be continuing to move forward. So the truth is probably in there somewhere. I, I have a really hard time personally with the idea of Christians continuing to define themselves as broken. Uh, again, this is kind of a modern evangelical kind of thing. It's like, I'm just so broken. I'm just so broken. Mm-hmm. Well, if you are a new creation in Christ, then you're not, in that sense, broken. I mean, you've been made new, been made whole. You're still in a sinful body, and so you will continue to sin. Um, but wallowing in your brokenness, again, that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about being transparent. I, there's got to be a path forward. And that story of transparency has to have a, a God ending to it somewhere along the way. Mm-hmm. And it does certainly in our environment. And if pastors could find that place in their environment, then that'd be very helpful. <laughs> and, uh, but again, 
you know, there's an awful lot to that. And I don't know where all of that necessarily goes. Um, and, and, you know, pastors also struggle with what will other pastors think? Right. Um, because often other pastors who are struggling like to know that someone else is struggling, not so they can help them or come alongside, but it, um, in some ways, I think probably makes them feel less bad about their own struggles, which again, they should be dealing with. So yeah, there's an awful lot there. The Greek mathematician Archimedes famously said, give me a solid point on which to stand and I will move the earth. I've loved this quote for years. When it comes to my most meaningful decisions, I find solid ground within myself to act from. Once I find that firm foundation, I know that I can plant my feet and push with my whole effort. And guess what? That you're listening right now is proof that the earth will move. But again, my first step is finding solid ground, not in the world, but within myself and my faith. And that has been a lifelong process of confronting my habits and my beliefs about myself, my past, and my future. Because as the author Orson Scott Card said, we question all our beliefs, except for the ones that we really believe in, and those we never think to question. So what if that solid ground is tied to our beliefs about ourselves, including things we've never thought to question? And what if by asking the right questions, we could find out what was true? And what if by finding the truth about ourselves, we find the solid ground we're searching for at last? Because that is my new Renaissance Mentorship Program, 12 weeks of me and you finding the truth about yourself, asking the questions you've never thought to, and beginning to push back. What would you do with 12 conversations with me? What would you want to talk about? What truths would you want to discover? And once you had them, what would you do with them? Could you build the life you've always wanted? A happy home, a thriving family, and a vibrant faith? If you had solid ground to stand on, could you move the earth? Email me at info at if you're ready to find out. Because my Renaissance Mentorship Program is where I take everything I talk about on this podcast, all the wisdom, experience, and insight of my guests, and make it real in your life. It doesn't happen by magic, though. It happens through effort and courage to ask the hard questions and then live out the true answers. That is the other half, support. Because what you know is meaningless if you don't do, and none of us can do it alone and I'm a good guy to have on your side. If this sounds like you or the man you want to be, solid ground is waiting in you. Email me at info at and let's get started because we've got an earth to move. I think, I think what you, you're, what's built into the structure of Mighty Oaks is part of the solution in a way because what you guys do on site is is private, right? It's confidential. Right. That's right. And the, and the, those agreements are enforced. And yep. in some sense, it's also secret, right? Like mm-hmm. the, like private and secret are not the same thing, right? Like what like what I do in the bathroom is not secret, but it's private, right? So everyone right. knows. So right. the thing is, but there has to be both privacy in terms of the men have to know that what they're um, what they're going to share is not going beyond the circle. Yeah. And what the circle is also experiencing collectively is secret, meaning that even no one will know about you personally, but also what we're doing here is removed from society and isn't open to scrutiny by anybody else. And that feeling of privacy and secrecy creates, the, creates that openness for men, because then when you leave the site, everything evaporates. It's gone, 
we let it exist and now it's gone and we carry with us the connections and the bond and the brotherhood yeah. Yeah. um but and, yeah. and, the, and the transformation yeah. but but nothing else yeah that's right no that's good i um and I think that's why it is is it's a challenge for church groups to find that same environment. Mm. Um, often, what happens with us as well is the participants come from all over the country. They didn't know each other before it started, and they go back to wherever they came from after yeah. that. So they don't have to look three rows up on Sunday morning and see the guy that knows that they were talking about whatever over the weekend. So there's something to that as well, um, but. If men are sincerely interested in finding, you know, their way forward, then they're going to work through that, and I think that's that's a big part of it. Um, another part of the discussion is being transparent doesn't mean that you have, um, you know, deep sin in your past or in your life. Hopefully, you don't. I mean, the goal is not to, you know, have that and come come on the other side of that. I, I came through that. I mean, so that is some right. people's story, but that's not everybody's yeah. story. But someone in your men's group or someone in your church group or someone in your, um, you know, whatever your group is, does have that story. And I think as a leader, it's okay to say, you know, I've sinned. My sin sent God to the cross, sent Jesus Christ to the cross. And it was bad and it continues to be bad. <laughs> and when I sin, it breaks fellowship with God. A broken fellowship with God creates a broken fellowship with my wife. It, you know, and you can walk through all of that yeah. without having the, you know, the adultery story or the drug story or the whatever story. So part of your transparency may just be, I struggle on a daily basis with sin that creates, um, you know, a, a vast chasm between me and God until I repent of that sin and get it right. What that doesn't do is address the guy in the room who's like, okay, <laughs> yeah, but I can't go three hours without, you know, looking at porn. Mm -hmm. Well, you've got someone in your church who God has redeemed from that as well. And, you know, it's a team effort, I think, I guess is what I'm trying to say is your story is your story. Don't embellish it. But there may be a point where you connect one guy to another guy who's had the same struggle yeah. or a similar struggle. I've never struggled with alcohol. Um, I can principally lay out what the Bible says about how to deal with that. Uh, but I will, as quickly as I can, get that person who is struggling with someone that I know that did struggle and they've come, come out on the other side of that. And so uh, there's a lot of moving parts, but I, I do think it's possible. This makes me think of the, the the larger challenge that I think men in America deal with, and it sounds like veterans deal with in a special way, is isolation. Just disconnection yes. from each other. Yes. Like we used to live in community. We used to have tight-knit groups of male friends that regulated our behavior and pushed us forward. And now, you know, we live we live our, our kind of comfortable lives separate from each other. And is it, a, is it any wonder that our lives start falling apart and we feel like we have to hold it all together on our own? The, uh, man, there's so much there. Yeah. The Department of De Department of Defense in April of last year uh, put out a study that they had done over the previous 12 months, which went back to the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And in that previous 12 months, the Department of De Defense reported that suicides amongst active duty military members went up a total of 35% in that year. <sighs> now, they, um, that is the DOD, attributed that to a lot of different things, but I would attribute it primarily to isolation. Mm -hmm. uh, you're taking those who are already struggling and then you're isolating them and putting them envir in, in environments where you've removed interaction, you've removed encouragement, you've removed camaraderie of any kind and certainly hope. 
the national mental health hotline um, in that same period of time calls increased. I think the number was a thousand percent over that period of time. Uh, we have all collectively come through a a moment in time where we can see the damage that isolation causes. Yeah. So take that, the lessons learned, and place those over certainly the male community. Isolation absolutely destroys. I did a podcast, actually, um, I recorded a podcast for my podcast um, yesterday that will come out tomorrow uh, dealing with suicide. And mm. um, the, the title of that, I think I've changed it a few times, but the, the working title uh, initially was It Happens in the Dark because that is, we make so many bad decisions when we're alone, when we isolate. And it's crazy that we can be around people and be absolutely isolated because we're not sharing with them uh, what's actually going on in our hearts and minds. Again, getting back to conversations about transparency and community and having those mentors and people in our lives. But isolation is probably the number one, if I had to put a number one on something, number one issue that veterans have that leads to... um, you know, this self-destructive behavior. It's, mm-hmm. it's isolation. Now there are causal elements there, but isolating themselves from others, refusing to get help is what causes them to end up in the places that they do. Yeah. Isolation. Absolutely. You, you want to get better right now <laughs> or feel better right now, uh, go get around some positive people and mm-hmm. that may not fix your problem, but it will make you feel better about your problem mm-hmm. and maybe even help you to think a little more clearly. I think that's one of the, the strong, uh, factors that we have built into our environment at Mighty Oaks is you're not isolated for that week. You're around people who are going to call you out, but also ask questions and listen to you talk and you can listen to them talk. You're not isolated in that environment. So much power in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can imagine that for um, veterans who have been isolated or even just with, they've been with their families they they ha- maybe they haven't been around brothers since they yep. left the battlefield, right. right? Right. And to get to re-experience some of that with men that they can look eye to eye and respect, who have you know similar yep. experiences, it's like wow, I'm getting a little bit of that feeling back that I had when I was in the military. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's getting back into that environment where you don't feel alone. So, taking that out to the broader male population, um, is it any wonder that men struggle when sixty to seventy percent were told of church attendees are women, uh, mm-hmm. that churches, uh, do generally a poor job and they're, you know, this is very much a broad brush, but yeah. generally do a, a poor job of pulling men into environments where they have camaraderie and fellowship and, uh, they can be encouraged. Um, they're able to isolate and they're able to get away from the community that should be there to encourage them con- to, to, continue to grow and continue to move forward and, and help them when they get in a fight with their wife and when they're struggling with their teenage kids and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, isolation causes us to do crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, I don't have the statistics in front of me. Um, I wrote them yesterday um, in a blog. I'm not plugging my stuff, by the way, but I, it's, it's top of mind. Right. Well, it's top of mind right now. But the I'm going to plug your book in a second. Yeah. Okay. Well, the statistics around suicide where it's, it's something crazy, like, and don't hold me to these numbers, but it's something crazy, like 75% of suicide attempts that weren't successful. Um, the decision was made to end a life within like less than an hour or something like yeah. that. There's all these crazy statistics around suicide where most suicides happen very impulsively. Now, I know we talk to people who they planned it for a long time. I know that happens as well. 
But that's not most people. It's most people who find themselves isolated from the rest of the world. Those lies, those thoughts get going in their mind. They look around and they don't see anyone. They feel very dark, very alone, and they make a decision. And um, what what prevents that in, in many ways, for many people, it would be a lack of isolation, getting around other folks who can help them. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. And 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 when you when you add in the COVID isolation and and, and the pandemic, it's like yep. you've got a lot a lot of people that are forced forced into isolation, right? right. With nowhere to go, right. and they're struggling, and and there's no there's nothing in the way to to stop them from making a, right. a terrible a terrible decision. And you know the 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 statistics the suicide statistics prior to COVID for men and women were you know men's suicide rates were you know two x or something like that. But after COVID, it's just yeah. it's just exploded. You know, and, and it's it's not talked about as often as it needs to be. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then the places closed down where men generally would find camaraderie. Um, yeah, I mean, we could talk about the church. Uh, that's a, a major issue, of course. Churches not meeting together, um, but this is clubs, this is organizations, this is gyms. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I, I, my my whole family's involved in a local jujitsu school, and um, the owner of the school just made a decision like I'll close the front door. I'll even lock it, but the back door is always open. So <laughs> you'd walk in there. I mean, this was like March and April, uh, height of the pandemic. Right. And, uh, you, you know, there's 70 people on the mats or whatever. Yeah. Why, why, why was that? Because people just have to have that connection and that's where they found it. But so many places that particularly men would find connection were just shut down. So now they're sitting at home <laughs> and, uh, with nothing to do fill that time with some very destructive behaviors. Yeah. Losing, losing their businesses, losing their connections. You know, and then there's losing. that, right? Yeah. 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 And then the relationship issues. I mean, the statistics around, um, you know, marriages that have ended in the last two years and all that. It's absolutely unbelievable. We were created to have fellowship with other people and um, the government has imposed isolation, but so many men impose that on themselves and just mm-hmm. don't get in the right environment. Uh, my wife, I, I'm not a naturally like go hang out with people kind of guy. My wife is constantly like, no, we're going to go and we're going to spend time with these people because you need to spend time with him. He needs to spend time with you. And, yeah. and and that's, again, that's her recognizing like we can't be isolated, but you can't be isolated. And um, yeah, so important. This makes me think of your book, um, March or Die. Um, and, and And that whole attitude being applied yeah. to like sometimes all that's necessary for a man to find his way to safety or relief is just to keep, is just to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and, and you will, will find. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, um, about that book. Yeah. So March or Die is a book that I wrote about my time in Iraq. Um, there are, um, I think 12 stories from when we were in Iraq and telling the story, it just serves as a starting point to then make a spiritual application. And so there are applications from that, uh, the title came from actually a motto of one of the units that I had been a part of. Uh, the Every military unit has its own motto, right? Mm. But in the Marine Corps, they're always simple because it's Marines. And this one is like, <laughs> march or die. You got two choices. You can stay where you are and die, or you can march. Those are the choices. Um, April 1st of 2003, and this is kind of the cornerstone story. I won't tell the whole story, but um, uh, again, I was leading the battalion I was navigating for the battalion, not leading, but navigating the battalion to an objective that was supposed to be unguarded. It was a bridge. And we got there and the mortar rounds started falling around us. Uh, not only was it guarded, but it was heavily guarded. Ended up in a firefight with a machine gun company. And then the mortar rounds, there was an anti-aircraft gun that started to come our direction. 
So a lot of chaos, and I tell this long form in the book, but I also talk about this often. And, and for anyone interested, they can find it on uh, my website. Um, but there was a moment where my platoon was on top of the bridge in, in a kill zone and the mortar rounds were falling. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy what you think about when people are trying to kill you. But at that moment, I thought, like, we can stay here and die or we can just get out of here. I mean, that was it. It was not more complicated than that. If we stay here, we're going to die. We can do that. Or we can go over there and get out of this kill zone and try to deal with this enemy, right? That was it. Like, it was not a big conversation. When you put it that way. Yeah, like, it's pretty simple. Yeah. But it's amazing to me. And, you know, that that has become kind of my life, like, moniker or uh, motto. Um, That's most of life. Like, you come into these situations in life where you have a trauma, a trial, a difficulty, something unexpected. You're making progress, but then finances turn, a relationship's not going the way that you want it to, uh, a kid goes crazy, whatever. You're moving forward as you should, but then something happens. When that something happens, most of us go into this period of evaluation where we say, I've got a thousand different things I could do. I don't know what to do. I'm not sure how this is going to work out. But really, it boils down to two decisions. You, you have two decisions. You can decide to stay where you are and die. And for many, that is a physical death. We talked about that a little bit. For, but, but for most people, it's, it's not. It's, a, it's spiritual. It's relational. Uh, it's emotional. It's, it's that put on the mask, go to work, do the thing, whatever the thing is, just get by. But I know I've kicked it into neutral. I'm just getting by. I'm not moving forward in any meaningful way. To live doesn't mean you're breathing. To live means you're moving forward, following God's plan for your life. One faith-filled step at a time. That's life. So you can stay where you are and die, or you can decide to just put one foot in front of the other and keep moving. And march is, you know, for me, that's an intentional word. um, Because when you march, and anyone who's been in the military knows this, you kind of have an idea of where you're going. Like, I'm going over there, (laughs) but... I don't exactly know where this thing is going to end up, but I know we're moving that direction and we're going to get there one foot, one one step at a time. And so most of life, I think really comes down to that. I'm going to follow God one step at a time. Um, I've become so overwhelmed in life when I try to figure it all out and I have to come back to this thing where it's like, okay, what's the next step? I'm going to take that. And then I'm going to take the one after that. And then I'm going to take the one after that. And then I'm going to take the one after that. And it's amazing when you continue to take those steps, of course, it builds up. But what you do is you get out of the kill zone and you get to a place where you can actually deal with the enemy, whatever that enemy is in front of you. And uh, that's that's principally what the book is about. And I tell a lot of stories and then use you know, uh, biblical principles for just helping to understand what it is to move forward. Uh, from that, I started the podcast, March or Die, and it's the same thing. What are the principles we need in our life to continue to move forward and so many issues that we deal with? Uh, but I, I believe that is a very, very powerful, albeit simple, principle. Uh, you can decide to stay where you are, or you can put one foot in front of the other and keep moving forward. You can do that. Don't figure it all out. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to understand it all. Just keep moving forward. And this is this is another thing that men's community is for is to remind each other yep. of this. Yep. Right. Right. Because yep. sometimes when we're isolated and alone, it can be difficult to summon up the will. Exactly. Right. Put that one step. But if you got a brother next to you or a bunch of brothers with you to tell you that that's all you have to do, that can be a very powerful reminder. 
in the military, you don't march alone. I mean, that's just, that's just walking, right? <laughs> like, like yes. you're not marching anymore. Like you always have people around you. Even in that story, we got caught on the bridge mm. and we were fighting. And there was a moment where there weren't words exchanged, but there was just a moment where there was a common understanding, like it's time to go. And, <laughs> yes. and we did, and we went together and we continued to fight together and we moved the way that we had trained to move. Um, but it was together. You isolate from that together and you're going to die, but you can continue to move forward as long as you have the right people around you. Some are a little further ahead of you so you can go, hey, I'm not as dumb as that guy and he's over there, right? <laughs> so like, if he can do it, I can do it. That's a big part of marching is realizing this is not about me. I tell that story and I always make the point. If I had been as the unit leader at that moment, if I had been so overwhelmed by what was happening that I just dug my heels in and said, this is where we're going to fight or die. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of those Marines would have died with me. But the decision to move instead of doing the easier thing was a decision that gave everyone the freedom to continue to move. And so often, men, <laughs> um, you think it's about you, but it's not about you. You keep moving forward because there are people in your life that need to see you moving forward so that they can move forward in their lives. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's, um, I always joke about the kid down the street who doesn't have a dad. And so he shows up in your driveway every time you're washing the car. Like that kid needs to see somebody moving forward. That kid needs to see uh, the example of someone who's doing hard things and continuing to push forward in spite of what's happening in the world because he doesn't have anyone else. Uh, maybe it's a niece, maybe it's a nephew, but whatever the case, uh, moving forward is is generally not even about you. It's about the other people who are watching to see what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. That's so that's so true. I, I often tell people that we'll always hear when we do a bad job, but we, right. one of the one of the one of the aspects <laughs> right. of being human is that yeah. when we just show up and do a great job, we have no idea who we impact. That's we really right. and because unless they come back and tell us, which is why I always you know, call customer service and say like, let, like, can I talk to your manager? Cause you did a really great job. That's Thank great. you. Yeah, that's great. You're the exception that to that. Yeah. <laughs> <I know. laughs> You're the exception. That's what they tell me. I only call when my wife makes me and it's always because I'm mad about something, but, uh, yeah, no, you're right. And, and if you're not around people, then it doesn't matter how good things are going or how well you're doing or whatever. Um, there's not that person there to lift you up and, and you need that, but being focused on lifting others up is also super powerful in your own life. And it's amazing when you stop worrying so much about how does this impact me and instead mm. ask the question, how does what I'm doing impact others? It changes the whole game. Like Doug Wilson says, masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like yeah. there it is right there, right? It's not about you. You're sacrificing right. yourself to take responsibility for others. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and going to a biblical example of, you know, what is the biblical example of masculinity? In my mind, it's, it's Jesus in Philippians chapter two. Um, the Bible in Ephesians five tells us to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Um, we can spend a long time talking about what that means, but what that means is I need to find out what Jesus Christ, what that looked like when he did that. Well, Philippians two tells us that who being in the form of man thought it not robbery to be equal with man, uh, uh, form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So at, at no point was the divinity of Jesus Christ in question. He was equal with God. He knew that, but he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, 
even the death of the cross. And then that passage goes on, but it's important for us to ask the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? Was it for his benefit or for someone else's benefit? It wasn't for his benefit. No. Now you could say, well, uh, he did it so that we could be reconciled to him. That's true. But he could have done a lot of other things like, you know, start over (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) He could have done anything that he wanted to. He didn't die for his own benefit. He didn't leave heaven. He didn't come to earth. He didn't live a perfect, sinless life. He didn't allow his creation to murder him for his benefit. He did it for ours. And to me, that is the purest illustration of what it means to be a man. Um, We're not in the form of God. We're not that. But the reflection of the life of Christ in us is humbling ourselves and doing what is necessary for the benefit of others. Um, To me, that's what love is. What is love? It's doing what is best for the object of your love. It has nothing to do with emotion. It's, it's not any of those things. It's making a decision to do what is best for the object of your love. That's what it means to be masculine, to be a man in a biblical sense. That's the example given to us by Jesus Christ. It is absolutely 100% all of the time a sacrificial life. I will use the tools, the resources, the opportunities, whatever I have for the benefit of others. Again, when we turn the corner and we focus on that, our responsibility instead of our rights, um, what people owe me. <laughs> and mm. We're not focused on that anymore. What do I owe? We're going to move forward. We don't have a choice. We have to. We're compelled to move forward because there are people in, uh, in whose lives we want to have an impact. As you bring these teachings into Mighty Oaks programs to veterans and men who maybe have never heard them expressed in this way, like, Maybe you can relate some of what that's like. It's hard to hear this in churches, yeah. right? But pastor's yeah. saying it, but when you take them onto the ranch and you expose men that have maybe, maybe they came from an abusive religious background, maybe they came from an atheist or a secular background, and you tell you paint this picture of masculinity and responsibility uh, that's embedded within Christianity itself, within the very story of Christianity, what sort of things do you see when you share that with men? It depends on the man, as you can imagine. Um, For those that have really no personal connection to to faith or Christianity, typically the response is better. They don't have a connection because they just, they weren't raised in church. They didn't go to church. They have ideas about what it means to be a Christian. Maybe they've known other Christians who uh, were good or bad or whatever. They have some perceptions, but, but they don't, They've never been shown from the Bible. This is what the Bible actually says. This is um, where we get these principles. This is where we learn this. It's funny. We do a class at the end of the week. It's at the very end, which it just worked out that way. But we teach the Bible all week. And then at the end of the week, uh, we show a video from uh, Dr. Bodie Bauckham on why I choose to believe the Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard his message on that. but Yeah, my friend um, Ryan, who went, sent it to me when I got back. And he, he breaks it all down, right? And it, uh, it's so powerful. But if a guy's never been really exposed to church, I mean, they listen to that. It's the craziest thing. They'll start like clapping when he you know, says something funny and they'll laugh when he, but, but it's like it, it gets them on a, like a, a heart level. Like, wow, that just makes so much sense. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty cool because it's uh, something we don't often get to see in church is someone who's completely has no experience with, with the Bible or Christianity at all. But for those that have been hurt by the church, um, testimony has a way of breaking a lot of this down. And so they come in perhaps cynical. Some have an education in 
you know, theology, some um, have a long history with, with Christianity, maybe even abusive church relationships and those things that you just mentioned. And so they'll come in very skeptical. I know this. Uh, there's nothing you can say that's going to change this. You know, they go through all that. Um, but they're not being taught by pastors. They're not being taught by professional uh, ministers. They're being taught in our men's program by guys who showed up at a program with nowhere else to go, understood what it was to have a relationship with Christ and have poured themselves into to gaining the knowledge they need to help other people. Um, it's so disarming because I'm not trying to make a theological argument with you. I'm not trying to like convince you <laughs> this mm-hmm. church or that church or this thing. I'm just telling you what God's done in my life and I can point to the verses. And it's so disarming. Now, we always have uh, what we call a mentor with us who is someone um, who has a, a biblical counseling background. But again, they're, they're there at every session, and they can uh, help work with some of those folks who are struggling with that. Uh, but again, it's going back to the Bible and saying, you, you know, I'm not giving you Mighty Oaks's position or a particular denomination's position or a church's position. Uh, I'm giving you what the Bible says, and this is how we approach this. And so. Um, Honestly, there are people who walk away from that and don't respond well to it, but it's a very, very small, very small number of people. Most people over the week have heard so many testimonies and so many stories, and then they've seen the the 30 guys who were at the session spend three hours giving their testimonies on Thursday afternoon about what God has done in their life. You, you, can't, you can't argue with that. So it really does create a picture of this is what pure religion and undefiled before God, (laughs) this is what this looks like. What I've experienced over there, what I've struggled with, what I've hurt with, that's, that's either not it or that's not nearly as important as what I've seen happen here. So it's really hard to argue with, with God working in lives of people who three days earlier hated God, were mad at God, were Mm -hmm. talking about suicide. So you have a you have a counselor on site to answer questions like I've been like hey, this came yeah. up and oh that's that's wonderful we, yeah we do and the reason for that um, early on that was me <laughs> um, but over time uh, we have so much going on that we we started to build in we're gonna have a we call him a mentor at every session and there's someone who is you know trained biblically um, uh, to answer these hard questions so if someone is really really struggling. Uh, maybe it's just a counseling situation where they're really struggling with a particular thing that just can't be addressed in a group setting. Um, but often it's it's these you know biblical issues that they're trying to struggle through. Uh, we have a mentor who can sit down and spend as much time as they need to with them to help work through that. And then that mentor is responsible for that group, whatever whoever those students were that week. They're responsible for them for the next six months. And uh, on a weekly basis, they'll reach out to them. Typically, it's an email with some helps that they can use. But they'll also be there to connect those students to other counseling resources or a church. Uh, They'll try to find them a church during the course of the week. We have somewhere to go back to. Um, So, yeah, that mentor serves that purpose. But it's uh, very much about pointing to, you know, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Bible says. And uh, you can do with that what you will. But (laughs) this is what the Bible says. So then, okay, so I'm glad that you brought it up because I was curious what kind of support is available to the men after the, after the week? Like they go back into the world and then what's, what, what happens for them? Yeah. 
So the mentor is a big part of that. They make sure that they have the support they need. When someone leaves our program, we tell them they need to do four things. So the last one of the last classes they'll get on Friday before graduation is what we call the four B's. Um, that's what I just broke down earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, be in the word, be in prayer, be in fellowship. That's in a church community. And then be in contact with what we call your corner man. But this would be a mentor, someone who can speak into your life. Mm. Um, and so we have a class that week on how to study the Bible, very basic class on how to study the Bible. We make sure everyone has a Bible. So we've taught them that. Um, and part of that is talking about how we pray and why we pray. Um, but a lot of those students don't have a church. And so that mentor over the course of that week will ask, I think on Tuesday, I think it's Tuesday, um, if you don't have a church back home, come and sign up. I need your name. I need your hometown. And they'll spend a couple of days during the program trying to connect that student to a local church so that wow. when they get home, they, whether they go or not is up to them, but they have a place that they can go to. So that mentor has gone on the website. They've found a men's pastor. Sometimes they'll connect them to a men's pastor and just make that connection. Uh, often it's just look at their statement of faith and you know figure out like, this is where I would go to church if I lived in that town. So they'll help them do that. Um, they also then will make themselves available to serve as a resource to reference out to other counselors. Huge network of biblical counselors that uh, we have access to uh, through the Biblical Counseling Coalition and some other organizations that make biblical counseling free to graduates of our program. Um, so that could be, you know, men need a counselor, the women's program, maybe it's couples that need a program, we'll help them get the counseling they need. We have a relationship with um, Family Life that does, they call it a weekend to remember, but it's a, a three-day, two-and-a-half-day uh, marriage retreat all over the country. We have a relationship with them, so we'll scholarship uh, graduates of our program to that. if They need that kind of help. And then we stay in touch with them uh, directly for six months. And then after that, of course, they're as, we're as available as they would like for us to be. But hopefully in that period of time, they've connected to a church and other groups that um, could help them. Um, we have, I think it's 45 is the number. It changes all the time, but uh, groups that we call um, outposts. And these are churches. Typically it's in a church, maybe it's in a somewhere else close to a church <laughs> of graduates that get together uh, on a weekly basis and they fellowship, they'll do a Bible study and they'll get together. And uh, anytime a graduate wants to start one of those, we'll help them to set that up. And that's just, so they have a meeting place. So uh, we've got those across the country as well. Um, and then, as I mentioned, all this, the the instructors come first as students. And so mm-hmm. we'll work with a lot of those folks who have graduated the program to train them up and uh, get them to a place where they can come back three or four times a year and and help in the program as well. Oh, that must be a huge blessing to the men that, yeah. that come through and, and get to lead as well, to get to, you know, reshare their story yeah. and, 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 and build community around them. I think it's a blessing. We work them pretty hard <laughs> when they sign <laughs> right. up for that. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of work, but yes, there is uh, so much support and training that goes into that as well. So um, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So maybe we can talk a little bit now about what's going on with the, the family, the family programs and also the program for women that I think you mentioned as well. Yeah. So for the families, we, um, you know, with the kids and the family together, uh, we learned several years ago, that what we're good at is doing a program for men and a program for women. And we learned that by doing other programs. <laughs> and so um, <laughs> we have great relationships with uh, folks like Family Life and others that uh, we make 
available. I mean, when I say that, we will pay for graduates of our program and their families to attend. And so there's several places that um, we'll connect folks to. And so that's been very helpful. Um, and particularly with, with children trying to process through a lot of this stuff, um, there are some great, very professional people who can help them and we'll help them connect to those resources. The women's program is, uh, man, that's, it's crazy. We did, I think this year, five sessions for women. Uh, same group of people. It's veterans, active duty service members, uh, first responders or spouses. Uh, we, you know, math, right. But, uh, most spouses of service members are, um, are wives, but there are some men who are the spouses. They can attend our men's program as well. But our women's program typically breaks up almost in half. You've got veterans, uh, military members, first responders, and then spouses. So it's about mm -hmm. a 50-50 relationship during most sessions. Um, early on, that was quite a struggle um, trying to figure that out. But our ladies, uh, man, they figured it out. We have an incredible program now. Uh, my wife is the women's program director, so she leads that program. And principally, it's the same as the men's program. Uh, and this is how we we deal with different personalities and different backgrounds and, and you know, where are you coming from? Um, they will start with an understanding on day one that we know that everyone came from different places. Um, all of our instructors fall into those categories of veteran, active duty service member, first responder, spouse. So we have leadership that falls into, you know, all of those areas and can speak to you directly, speak to that directly. And so, again, we want to break down those walls. But what we're really here to do is, is not learn how to be better at any of those things. We're here to learn how to be the women that God created us to be. What does it mean to be the woman that God created you to be? Whether you're in the military or we're in the military, whether you're in the first responder community or we're, whether you're married to somebody who's struggling, what does it mean to be the woman that you were created to be? Each one of those areas would have their own unique challenges connected to that. Um, spouses of veterans often fall into kind of a caregiver mentality. And so that's mm. what they become. Um, and we need to give care. But God created you to fulfill specific roles and to, you know, to be something um, specific and purposeful. And you need to understand what that is. So what does it look like to be a woman? And there are several categories that they'll break down over the course of the week, including uh, marriage and, you know, understanding your, so, so marriage, but then understanding your identity as a woman, what that looks like, fulfilling your roles in the context of, um, you know, Christian womanhood and what that looks like. So, um, a struggle to get there, but they have gotten there. And over the last several years, um, it's been amazing to see even what God has done there. It's, it's so crazy to get people from different backgrounds. Hmm. Um, all loosely connected because of their shared background, um, but it's loose connections. Um, but then to get to the fundamental understanding of what it's going to take to move forward for you is knowing who God created you to be. And once you understand that, then you can continue to move forward. So it's been, uh, it's been so powerful. It's been amazing. Yeah. Trying to, uh, I'm trying to imagine like just how beautiful this must be to see, you know, women who have been in the various branches of the military, maybe, yeah. you know, and and have had have lived in a, a particularly probably a very masculine way, right? You know, being being service members to varying yep. degrees, and then also um, women who are used to being um, used to being spouses in a particular way that might not necessarily be in alignment with God's design for women. Yeah. And to watch them reconciling their different perspectives and understanding the way that they've been misled as women, 
that must be, I mean, I imagine there probably aren't a lot of men on those weekends to see stuff like that, but no. it must be a beautiful thing to witness. It's, um, so I have not been to one, but I have yeah. heard many, many, many stories. And what is interesting on the men's side, men were created by God to be leaders of communities and leaders of homes. The, the warrior mindset or ethos is something that connects well to what God uniquely created men to be. And so we're able to address that with men in a way that we're not able to address it with women. And when we started our women's program, uh, we started it because um, the Marine Corps actually said, hey, you've got this program that men can go to. We don't have anything for our, our, our women Marines. Um, can you start something for them? So what we did literally was we duplicated what the men's program was and took it over to a women's program and had the men's program taught by women to women. And it did not work at all. <laughs> it oh, didn't wow. work at all. And it didn't work because we were connecting with who men were, but trying to bring it together, right? Into alignment. So um, in the military, you were a leader. In the military, you were a warrior. In the military, you understood who you were. Your identity was clear. Let's let's help you understand how God created those things to work. And men, it, it resonates. It makes sense. But as you said, women coming out of those environments often have a skewed view of, of masculinity for sure, yeah. but also have a very unclear, if any, understanding of what it means to, to be a woman. And so with a lot of trial and error, um, the women's program <laughs> wrote all of their own curriculum, oh, wow. uh, realigned everything, and got to the point where the first conversation is, thank you for coming. We realize that you are all from different backgrounds. We're going to address those individual backgrounds, here's our team, here's their backgrounds, here's how that connects to you. Same thing, we're going to break down those walls, et cetera. But what you're here to do <laughs> is not argue about that, <laughs> not even talk about that. Yeah. What you're here to do is to understand who God uniquely created you to be. And that's the approach that they have taken. And again, over the last several years, it's been, it's been amazing. And what has come of that is where there is uh, this developed animosity between these groups, particularly those who've served in the military and those who are spouses of those who've served in the military. Um, yeah. That does not typically gel well. And that was mm. a big problem that we had early on in the program. Um, it, it destroys that because really that is not, that's not what we're here to talk about. It doesn't matter. You spouse, you service member, you first responder need to understand who God created you to be. And again, this doesn't remove the fact that we have people from all of those communities who speak specifically into those situations. When we break up into small groups, we make sure that the leader of that small group can speak to the situations that those members of that small group are coming from. Um, but the platform teaching, the, the main classes are taught from a perspective of, here's what all women everywhere need to understand. Uh, here is how God created you to live. Um, interesting challenges and you know, the world being what it is, some of the women have um, even come from, you know, various backgrounds related to their own sexuality and those kind of things. And the word of God is very powerful mm -hmm. and it's very clear. And those participants can decide what they want to do with the information, but God laid out a path um, that can be followed if we're willing to follow that. And so um, that's been the challenge on the women's program, but man, they've done an incredible job. The team has been trained so well, a lot of trial and error, a lot of hard work, but again, they, 
they stepped back and said, all right, we need to rewrite this curriculum. Uh, the format is the same. It's a class taught and a small group given. But um, the curriculum is is directed specifically at being a woman. And so, um, yeah, it's been powerful to see what's come out of that. I imagine that it must also be a little bit controversial, right? And some, or maybe not, but I mean, do you, how do you find, well, yeah. how do you find women respond to this? Because it's, yes, it's there in the Bible. It's written this way for a reason, right? That yeah. God's design is for a purpose, but like, that's a, that's a touchy conversation these days. Yeah. I think it's obvious, but. Yeah. The last class that's taught is the marriage class. And that is for a, uh, for, the, oh, wow. for that reason in particular. <laughs> okay. Um, one thing we've learned uh, again, this is in both. This is in both programs, not just the women's program. Is um, you know they say a good teacher understands how to go from the known to the unknown. Hmm. Uh, most most Christian programs that I've been a part of start with the like we don't care about what you know or don't know. We're going to get to the you know let's confront okay. right now. Um, <laughs> and, and that was always my approach. And then we learned like that's why I was talking about the big funnel, like a little bit of Jesus to a lot of Jesus. Let's talk about what all of us know and can agree on. Uh, and then we'll work to those things that are harder to digest. Um, on the women's program side, the roles, particularly within marriage, is something that is, um, unfortunately, it's 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 a challenge for Christian women. It's a, it's a challenge yeah. for women inside of the church, let alone those who have zero concept of this. And uh, it's taught well. They do a great job. Um, but they also have, you know, at that point, four days of trust built yeah. in. And so... Not everyone responds well to it, um, but only a few <laughs> ladies have have responded very poorly to it. Most yeah. will just go, I appreciate everything else you've said, but I don't agree with that. And then we just have to go, well, that's, yeah. do with that what you will, and that's fine. Um, but just know that now all of the other marriage resources we're going to push your way <laughs> um, are going to tell you the exact same thing. So if you want to go to a, a weekend to remember, you want uh, marriage resources that we have uh, produced and provided, if you, any of those things, it's going to be that. So understand that's that's where we're coming from. And um, if you start right, strong, but not obnoxious, <clears throat> mm. and start with what people can generally agree on and work to the harder things, you've hopefully built in enough trust over the week that we can deal with some pretty difficult things. Um, it, it's crazy. I mean, even, even with the men, I mean, telling proven combat leaders, they don't know anything about leadership is like, that, that's pretty controversial, right? Like yeah, you don't know true. how to lead. So let me tell you how to lead. Like, what are you talking about? I led in combat. I'm, we've had, you know, maybe cross recipients and silver star recipients and lots of combat leaders at very high levels. Um, well, there is a right way, and what you know is a way, but the foundational principles are what you need to get a hold of. So anyhow, yeah, it's, it's been really, really interesting, um, and the women do a great job on the women's side to just build the trust that's necessary over the course of a week, and, and that's just time, man. They spend uh, 24 hours a day for almost seven days with these ladies and just work through whatever they're dealing with with them, and uh, it's it's produced. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty awesome to see. Well, praise God for that. Literally praise God for that because yeah. I know how, I know how hard some of that work can be. Um, and, and, but how vital it is because it's for that very reason, because it's so difficult to do. And I always say that's the reason there is not another women's program like this mm -hmm. anywhere in America for sure. I, and I, I don't mean that like 
hypothetically or whatever. Like, like, no, there's not another program for women like this anywhere that I've ever seen. There are women's programs, but they're not this. And so getting men together and saying, we need to talk about this stuff. We need to deal with that stuff. Men typically can resonate with that. Like even strong language, right? Like, like, look, you need to get off your butt and you need to stand up and like, like we can have those conversations and no one's going to go like, what are you saying? Yeah. Um, some guys do, but we deal with that too. Right. But, but women, it's like, it's a whole different world. And so that's why most women's ministry is about encouraging and about strengthening and about, you know, let's, let's, uh, lift you up. And that's not what our women's program is about. It's mm-hmm. about dealing with the hard things in a group of other people who are also emotional and and also have a lot of hard things, and we're going to work through this together. It, it's so powerful, but it is so difficult. It's it's so much work. I, I I say that as someone who's not put the work in, other than trying to help my wife and the rest of the team do that. But um, they've done it, and and they've done it for the glory of God. I mean, there are there are weeks that you know the team's like, I don't ever want to do that again, and yeah. they'll come back and, and do it again. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, I have some more questions I want to ask about that, but I know we're getting to the end of the time. So um, I do want to close with, with asking about um, what's the best way to talk to a veteran about the Mighty Oaks program in a way that encourages them to come? Because I can yep. already think of a couple guys that I want to share this program with, and I want to make sure they go. Now, I, now my, my buddy Ryan, who went, said that there was someone on his weekend that his family took this man to the airport and said, don't worry, you've got a ticket. It's going to be a nice, all-inclusive vacation. Just go have a good time. Bye. And they yeah. dropped him off and they arrived like, what's going on here? Right. So like, you know, short of, yeah. short of that, right? Yeah. How do yeah. we let men know about in a way that invites them in? Yeah. We don't recommend that by the way. In fact, we, <laughs> yeah, no, no, we, no. <laughs> we do our best to uh, make sure that they at least understand what they're getting into. Yeah. Although we've had that happen for sure, man. Um, so, okay. So again, this is one of those, it depends situations. Sure. Okay. Um, if someone has been to the program, they are the very best resource for encouraging someone else to go to the program. And particularly if they're friends, acquaintances, um, but they're a veteran, they went to the program, they can talk about what it is and what it isn't, and, and uh, they can sell the program. Uh, we, we did not even advertise Mighty Oaks. We do now quite a bit. <laughs> we did not even yeah. advertise Mighty Oaks in the beginning for, for a number of years because it was all just word of mouth and um, one person telling another person. So that's the best way. Um, and then, again, it gets into, it depends how open the person is to receiving help. Sometimes uh, you'll come across folks who are looking for help mm-hmm. and they they can acknowledge, I'm struggling, I don't know what to do, um, I don't know where to go. Uh, maybe there are places I could go, but I can't afford it, you know, or... Uh, Christian people who want to go to a, a Christian program or a faith-focused program. It's very easy with those folks. They go to our website. There's a place at the top of the website says programs. Uh, under that programs tab, there's a place to apply. You fill out the application. That goes to our application team. Uh, within 24 hours, they'll get back to you and they'll start to work with you to put together a time. Again, 35 sessions across the country. There's always something going on. doesn't matter where you live. We're going to cover the cost of travel. So we'll work with you on the schedule so that we can get you to the place that's having a program, you know, that works with your schedule. So there's no cost, no program cost, no travel cost. We'll get you there. We'll take care of it. So if you're looking for a resource, go to our website, apply. Um, Beyond that, there are a lot of resources on our website. 
<clears throat> that book, March or Die, other books that we have um, are a good way to say, hey, I know you were in the military. These guys were in the military too. We've got a bunch of resources. Um, I thought you might like this. And that can help soften the ground, if you will, to help people be at least open to those conversations. There is a place on our website. It's a tab that says watch. Uh, under the watch tab, there are hundreds of videos, uh, testimonies, all kinds of stuff from the Mighty Oaks YouTube channel that uh, can be an encouragement to people as well. So sometimes it's sending a link. Hey, came across these guys. They work with veterans. I know you're a veteran. Here's a bunch of stuff they put out. Thought you might be interested. Um, it really just depends on the person. And it's encouraging them as strongly as you can without pushing them away. And one of the reasons we've developed so many resources is so that you have at least that tool to hand off to someone and say, thought you might be interested. Check this out. Um, I know it doesn't cost anything. That's a big thing. And uh, if you'd ever like to go, I'm, I'm you know, like for you. Um, hey, I, I know those guys and uh, I'll reach out to them. I'll let them know that you're going to sign up. I'll help them help make that connection. That can be helpful mm. as well. So really, <laughs> uh, whatever works. Short yeah. of, I would say, putting someone on a plane and saying there's an all-inclusive vacation out there. Um, right. But whatever works, uh, we'll work with them to, to get in. Um, I'll, I'll say this, too, in that vein, particularly for the first responders, we've worked with a lot of police departments and fire departments to get time off. Uh, that doesn't count against your time off. Mm -hmm. Because we're a non-clinical program, uh, you can come and get some help without it impacting your ability to work because there will be no records sent back to anyone. And so police departments particularly like that fire department has been a help. And, um, even on the active duty side of the military, that's been, been a help as well. We've had a lot of active duty service members attend. And I, I know of a couple that have taken leave to attend because they, they just chose to do it that way. Um, but I don't think we've ever not had a command say, yeah, I'll, I'll cut them loose for five days so that they can uh, go to this program. So We'll do whatever we can to work with you. So as a person trying to encourage someone, um, encourage as strongly as you can <laughs> um, without pushing them away. Use the resources if you have to. Send videos, hand off a book, and uh, encourage them that way if, if, if they're pretty closed off to it, which some people are. Um, but if you know someone in the program, if you know uh, one of the leaders in the program, uh, offer to make that connection, and that can be the thing that unlocks it as well. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. This has been an amazing conversation. I'm very grateful for all of your insights and experience. And, you know, I, I can already think of several men that I want to send, you know, the podcast to, but then also Mighty Oaks as well. So where and where would you, where can people go to find out more about you and what you do and, and Mighty Oaks? Yeah. So Mighty Oaks is really simple. It's mightyoaksprograms.org, mightyoaksprograms.org. And everything is there about Mighty Oaks. So please check that out. It's the best way to find out more about us. Um, that'd be great. And then I have a, my own website, which has my blog and a couple other podcasts I'm involved in and all, all of my personal contact stuff, socials and all that. Uh, it's real simple, jeremystonlicker.com. Um, again, I was a Marine, so it's got to be simple. So jeremystonlicker.com and uh, a couple of podcasts I'm involved with, um, resources, socials, and my blog, which is where I write every week. So i uh, love for people to check that out. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. Yeah. Again, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Will. I appreciate the work that you're doing. It's such an important uh, I was going to say task, but work that you're involved in, someone has got to be having these conversations. And I really appreciate you doing the hard work of having them and having deep conversations. Uh, it's funny in the men's space, most guys have very superficial conversations that kind of devolve to like 
uh, how much do you exercise and, you know, do you like to hunt? And I, I'm for both of those things. Um, but we need to have deeper conversations and you're having them. So thanks for doing it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I try to model what I what I hope for men to become. Good. Awesome. Thanks, man. episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.